Tony, we have a quote from you, and it is, writing is about putting life on the page. It's about finding the amazing in the mediocrity and the beautiful in the sewers. It's important to get it on the page and be a writer. Can we talk about that quote? Sure, that sounds great. I don't know when I said that. <laughs> okay. It sounds good. All right. Yeah, sure. Um, I guess probably at the time when I, was, when I said that, I was probably thinking of just... Uh, Getting life's messiness and the beauty on uh, on the page um, or on the screen, if we can, because um, I mean, that's what I try to go. F that's what I try to go for when I'm writing is what's the heartache, and then you know what devastates me, and then I'm like, okay, now what's the levity? Uh, what's the um, where, where 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 can where can I find the the emotional breath in it where because just as I continue to write and live, I just find out, oh wait, everything is kind of suffering and struggle, but there's a lot of joy in it. And if, if I'm struggling, then there's joy. So let, it's, I guess for putting it on the page, we condense it into a tincture of um, our struggles and our joys because when it's, you know, whether we're writing a novel or a screenplay, the, um, it, it's so much more boring than our real life. Our, our real life is very boring and the screenplay is a condensed version of it. So if we can just condense those, the beauty and the awfulness of just being a human and then just kind of move it around in a lovely tragedy, sad comedy way, I think that's, maybe that's what I was trying to get at. I'm not sure. <laughs> when you work with your students, do you notice they tend to lean one side or the other in terms of some are more about the mediocrity and the messiness and the others are more about the beauty and you have to find a middle ground? They, most students have a hard time just getting into conflict. Um, always more, more. <laughs> so that it's, it's uh, especially beginning students or students in the second quarter where it's like, and I'm like, this is cool, but where's this conflict? And, and 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 it's about finding, you know, when they're writing dialogue and I and I, you know, I see what they're doing with their characters, I'm like, oh, this is sexy. You know, I'm noticing something about this character's relationship to the mother. What do you do you know the three-dimensional character of the mother that she's referring to? Because if you know that, then you'll know more about that character. And you don't need to say all of it, but you need to know it, and that will inform your your dialogue, it'll inform how your character presents themselves in the room, it'll inform how the character interacts with other characters. So um, so a lot of it is, yeah, push more conflict, and at the same time, just write. When you just write and and it get and you get the first uh, you, you get the first layer down, then you, then it's funny to start noticing things where you're just like, oh, wait a second, that character might have a, a stepbrother who does blank, and you don't even need to add that to the screenplay or to the story, but having that little bit of backstory brings in another dimension to the character. And it's sometimes um, when it gets to a director, when it gets to an actor, they're feeling something deeper because you put something deeper in there so they can dig into something deeper. And I feel like that's when the beauty happens. And we don't tell each other what the deeper was. We let everyone do their own deeper. And then um, then they, then yeah, that's, that's where uh, 
So my student, yeah, as students as students grow, I think a lot of it is just putting the time into writing and the rewriting and put and just and then they kind of start seeing the character laid out. And then when the character's laid out, oh, wait a second. It's funny how I put that dialogue in. I didn't even notice at the time, but they may have a problem with blank and explore that blank and then come back and go, does this work in here? No, but I know that this person has a problem with that and kind of layer it in later in the story. Interesting. So let's suppose I'm going to write something about a CEO and this CEO is very sort of he has almost like a dictatorship relationship with his employees. But what we don't know is his father used to to run the company. But we don't know that as as the viewer, as the reader. And his father was even more of sort of a, he had like a general uh, that, you know, ruled with an iron fist. So if we knew that as the writer, but we don't have to tell people, it's kind of in our back pocket, then, then it might help with how our main character interacts. We know that he has this history with his father. Yeah, and we, and we can we can put subtle breadcrumbs in there to write it that way, and when it gets to a director, they may see it. I I've noticed um, that they'll add their relationships in their past to the stories. So it might not even be a father; it could be an old boss they used to work with, and then so they put a dynamic to that. And then when it gets to the actor, the actor's like, "Okay, how am I interpreting this on my own? What what does this mean to me?" And so they'll see how this character is acting. If they're acting like, um, like they're a dictator, uh, they'll also know that in their mind that, that, uh, that character believes that they're doing the best they can for humanity. <laughs> it's like they're the hero of their own story, even if they're awful people. But so it's like finding that balance of where is the humanity because that humanity is coming from somewhere. So it could come from abuse of a father. It could come from so many different other things. It could come from where they grew up, how they grew up, and they feel like what they're doing is right to bring in the whole, uh, to bring in whatever group they're trying to bring in. And that's when, um, that's when the beauty happens. And that's when we don't see, we, 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 see, we know it as screenwriters, but then we don't say it. And then it's fun to see a director go, oh, and then they, and you just kind of see them start to bring their own stuff in. They see the actor bring their own stuff in and just don't ask any questions. Just let them do their thing. That's, that's when the great directors and the great actors are just like, they pull it together. So we got to do our part on the page. And then that it makes, it, it's, uh, it gives them a huge opening to explore it in themselves, whatever part of the camera they're on. Interesting, right. So, so, having, so knowing when to get out of the way of your own work and allow the, the actor and the directors to kind of bring their own pieces to it? Oh, totally, yeah. And, uh, and, and especially for, uh, for Jesus Jerk, I was a part of the whole process. So when I was on set every day, and, um, and I just, I, I was fortunate I've taken acting classes and I took classes on directing, you know, like 20 years ago. And then when, and then when, all, when all that came together, it's like everything came together of, oh, okay, I kind of knew what to do and what not to do when I got on set. And it was just like, let it breathe. And then when, uh, when I felt like there needed to be an adjustment, I would never talk to an actor. I would talk to the, I would just pull the director aside really quick and go, hey. And it had to be a, it had to be a major thing. And I would just like go this, this, and this. And he'd be like, okay. And he'd turn around and he goes, you know what? Let's try something else. And he would be taking my note, but it wouldn't be, uh, it's, it's um, there's a beauty and finesse, I guess, to, uh, to letting people do their jobs and you want to let people do their jobs because they are good at their jobs, you know.
So with your students, when it's a new writer and, and you, you want to bring out more in them, maybe, maybe they're afraid of putting in conflict. Maybe they've been told, oh, let's only say nice things. We don't want to, we don't want to be, you know, a bad person or whatever. How do you, how do you coax them to not, not do something overly salacious where anyone's harmed, but let's bring some realism to it. I think the, I think the conflict's already there. Sometimes I call it the agreeables. So if there's a if, there's, if they send me two pages of a scene and it's agreeable, um, then those characters can agree with the outcome, but they can't agree to what the outcome is, how to get to the outcome. So they they their point of view needs to be very um, needs to be almost like uh, what would you say maniacal because their point of view is right on the page to get to that outcome, and they both want to get to the same outcome, but um, to get there, there's got to be friction amongst themselves. So if, if they're agreeable, then, I, then that's when I'm just like, what's your character's point of view on this? Exactly why do they want to get there? What's behind theirs? Okay, what's behind them? What, um, if, you know, if they're sisters, what conflict do they have uh, with uh, being siblings? If, you know, if they're just best friends, what conflict do they have? If they're cops in a buddy movie, great, they're buddies. But these buddies are going to be at odds with each other on how to get to where they both want to go. How do you search for those beautiful moments in the midst of tragedy? I think I find the tragedy first. I think the tragedy is what guts me. And then, um, and then I try to find meaning in the tragedy, meaning in my tragedies. Um, and it's hard to find meaning in the tragedy. I've, uh, I've, I mean, since Confessions of a Teenage Jesus Jerk, I've written two other books where I went even deeper into tragedies. And one, I checked myself into a outpatient hospital program because I was suicidal. <laughs> so um, the, I've had to learn to pick my tragedies and then also, um, and also give them time, I think. And that's, uh, I wasn't giving my tragedies enough time. But I, the, the, the beauty of tragedy is we're, we all have tragedies. We all, it's, we connect on it. And I think, um, I think as humans, we, we connect more on not just the tragedy, but how we got out of the tragedy. Like even in film, even in film, it's like you put your character into conflict. Then we want to know how are they going to get out of the conflict? How are they getting out of that little tragedy moment in scene? And then that's what shows character building. And I feel like we're character building around each other when we do have tragedies in our lives, when we can, we find our ways to pull out of it and then survive and then go, wait a second. Okay, how does this work for me in, um, you know, in being with other people? And then other people, it's, it's you know, it's just um, the beauty of, oh yeah, I've been through that. You just, you hear someone who goes, oh yeah, no, I've been through that, I get it. And that's all you need and you're like, ah! And there's just instant camaraderie with tragedy, which is sad, I don't know why we need tragedy and we all just can't be uh, joyful Buddhas. But uh, for some odd reason, tragedy and um, suffering, I think, is in the theme of our lives and our existence. So when we put it on the page um, and we get to see our protagonist get into the tragedy, get into the conflict, whatever the conflict is. The conflict could be the protagonist wants to ask the woman of his dreams out on a date. 
you know, or it could be the protagonist is being riddled by bullets and they're trying to dive and they're in the trenches. And as far as the film is concerned and the conflict's concerned, the stakes are the same in, as far as what the character's um, internal tragedy is happening. I, I, I like to, even, um, even when I have students who are writing romantic comedies and they apologize for it, I'm sorry, I'm like, don't apologize. And I was like, watch mob movies. Watch mob movies and, and, and as you uh, look at the beats of the conflict of the mob movies, it's very simple because there's a lot of hierarchy involved. And then bring it over to your romantic comedy and you can add those beats in and keep those stakes just as high as the mob film. And, but, it's, but it'll be under the guise of a you know, romantic comedy and the greatest, you know, the, the fun comedy vibe. A lot of it comes from a tragedy or a tragic place and that's when it's even more funny. Yeah, so. That's great. Do you have certain movies you recommend? One romantic comedy versus one mob movie? Oh, that would be, uh, yeah, I wish I had those. Um, I, well, I watched that TV series Gamora recently. Uh, the Italian, uh, I think it was the Italian one. Um, but as for mob movies, you know, I'll tell them to watch. I mean, I, I, you know, I spoke ahead. I don't have, I'm not a, I don't have a good, uh, I don't have a good knowledge of romantic comedies or mob movies. But um, one, one movie I bring up a lot in class and it drives some people nuts is Swingers. Um, I think that was 1996 with John Favreau and Vince Vaughn. And they're a group of friends, and you know, John Favreau's character, his name's Mike, and he's the protagonist, and he's trying to get over his girlfriend. That He's trying to get over heartbreak. He's trying to make it in L.A., but mainly he's trying to get over heartbreak. And everyone in the movie just wants to help him get over heartbreak. But if you really watch the movie and you watch the dialogue that's happening, they are fighting the whole time. It's almost like they're about to come to blows with their dialogue, but they all want the same thing. They just want Mikey to feel better. Mikey, just get over your girl, your ex-girlfriend. But they're, they're, it's a constant push and pull, and it's funny, and it's sad, and so when, this, when, they're, when the point of view of each character is bringing in that high of stakes to the same goal, that's when, you know, it's, I mean, if it's, it's, a, it's a tragedy to watch the movie. The, the whole movie is a tragedy, but it's hilarious because everyone's, the, the angle they're fighting at is just funny. Sure, sure. I, mean, I think there was some in um, Moonlight and Mystic Pizza. There, there's a lot of dialogue that's very similar to that, too, where there's, the, it might be loving, but they're yelling and, and sort of, it is like rapid fire with the dialogue and back yeah, and forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's... And that's when it's beautiful, and that's when we connect because we, we, you know, it's like we want we want the character to win. You know, it's like how is the character going to win? How are they going to get there? And then we almost, you know, when when they're when there's heavy conflict on the screen, it's almost like they start to go into a situation. We're like, no, don't go there. Okay, if you go there, you better do blank, blank, and blank. And of course, they're not going to do that because we want to keep the movie going another five minutes. So it can't be resolved yet. They need to get more. Uh, sand in their eyeballs before they get to the next scene. So. Why do you think your students feel they have to apologize, or some of them feel they have to apologize for wanting to write romantic comedies? I don't know, you know, it's, I think people apologize for genre sometimes. And, and I'm just like, don't apologize. It's, uh, every story means something, um, no matter what you're doing. And it, it's and it's what you love, you know, just, it, write the movies that write a movie that you love 
Like it's, it's why do we go to see movies and you, and where a movie just hits you in the heart and you're like, oh my God, that movie is great, even if it's Pretty Woman. But if that's what gets you, if that's what stirs your soul, there's a reason for it. Write that, write, don't write that movie, but write, write the, um, write the general idea and the general theme of that movie, right? Uh, you know, write the Meg Ryan, Tom Hanks movie. It's, it's all just, it's, I think maybe there's a, um, there's a pressure for like, oh, is it Oscar worthy? Oh, would this, would this be, <laughs> would Meryl Streep be cast in this? And it's just like, no, write, write your truth, write what's important to you. And that's going to make the best movie that you can make. No, you know, never write towards something that you just feel like is a good idea, you know, that's, uh, that everyone's on and on about. Remember the movie Foxes? I don't. Oh, okay. It has Scott Baio, Jodie Foster, is it Sally good? Kellerman, and is uh, from The Runaways, Sherry Curie. Oh, I, I the have lead to singer. Watch this oh, okay. Though. So, and it's it's a and it's the one of these movies where it just doesn't leave you, and so it's one of these things where you would say it, and people go, "Oh, you like that movie," but there shouldn't be anything wrong with liking a movie. I uh, yes, it calls I to you. I totally agree, and I don't like it when people uh, dirt on other people for liking something. Right, right. That just irks me to no end, and I and I think that doesn't lead to more conversation. That leads to a stop, and so you know if. It doesn't matter what people like. It's fun. It's, it's, it's you know, don't, it's like, you know, and I come from the music, a college radio music DJ, which was the snottiest of snottiest in the 1990s. <laughs> and I was that jerk. And I, so I started to realize, wait, just because someone doesn't know Sonic Youth or the Poostics doesn't mean that they're inferior humans, um, you know, or maybe they don't like a certain thing. Like even the, you know, it's, if they don't like something, it's fun to find out why. That's the, that's the, oh, why don't you like that? Or why do you like that? Oh, you know, I, I found a, I found a, a Backstreet Boys song for, for a project I was working on. And I'm like, this is perfect. And I, you know, I know everyone's, there's going to be a lot of people that are going, well, why is Tony putting a Backstreet Boys song in there? But, um, but it's just like, it's just perfect. And if someone wants to go see the Backstreet Boys, just let them let them enjoy their experience. I, I don't like it when people try to crush people's experiences. Right. Um, if they want to see Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks possibly get together, great. Why why do you like that movie? That's that we should be passionate about it because every it, life's hard enough as it is. So you know, um, taking a crap on people's taste is kind of the last thing we needed to do. Let's try to find out why they like a certain thing. That's where the fun stories are, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think people should, whether it's music or, or books or, or film, yeah, yeah. should be entitled to, if we want to watch a real cheesy movie and, and enjoy it and, and or even have it playing in the background all the time, yeah. there's something that calls to us. I, I use Ocean's Eleven a lot in my, uh, this is the Soderbergh, uh, I always say his name wrong. I hope I said it right that time. Uh, his his remake, um, but that movie's gorgeous as far as a heist movie and all the elements of storytelling. And I actually I'll watch it for fun sometimes, and people kind of are just like, eh, you know, it's like, oh yeah, <laughs> oh that top forty movie. What are you talking about? And I'm like, no, there's actually there's a lot of great scenes in there that I'll bring to class and show the dynamics of, and just the dialogue. And the dialogue is tight, and those actors are all top notch actors. Just, yeah, some of them are superstars. That's fine, but they are great at what they do. And there's a reason why 
most of them are superstars is because they've worked really hard to get there. How do you write evil? Easily enough, unfortunately. I think we got a lot of evil in all of us, so it's okay to just dive into the part of us that's dark. Um, if I'm, uh, you know, it's, I think writing evil is, to write evil, you have to almost pretend like no one's gonna read it. Because you don't want to, you don't want to anyone to think you're evil. Oh right. my God, I would never be that evil. But there's just a beauty <laughs> to knowing that we all have an evil inside of us, and we can go there. We just choose not to. Sure. So there's there's just a beauty of just really letting it go on the page, and not um, and and some people read it and be like, oh, you know, I mean, I you know, I can't write serial killers like that. That narrative just I, that scares me. I don't like. Even, I, I can never watch a serial killer film. Those things just don't make sense to me. But, you know, we, we, we can find, we, we can embrace the, um, our tendencies because we all have bad in us. It's, you know, and we're not, uh, we're not politicians. Well, well, politicians have more bad in people than normal. But, um, but we're not trying, I don't think we need to present ourselves as beautiful flowers. We're, we're we're all a little corrupt, um, and especially in the film industry, you see a lot more corruption but under the guise of like, oh, this is virtue, and you get behind the curtain a little bit, and you're like, ew. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's kind of easy to write evil. It's, it's, it's almost easier to write evil than it is to write, uh, you know. Evil's interesting. It is. Yeah. And do you think it's more interesting to write a virtuous character who secretly has evil or an evil character that, you know, you see it and you go, okay, this is definitely evil. And then you're seeing sort of what that person's life is like. Are we more intrigued by what's not shown and what we're discovering as the audience? As well, I'll first answer that as the writer. So what I try to do is when I find, I go back into my life and I go, you know what? I hate that, I hate that person. I hate what they did to me. I'm gonna write a character about them and I'm gonna show everybody just what a piece of crap human being this person is. And when this person watches the movie, they're gonna go, oh my God, that's me. I need to change my life. So that's the original intent. And then I start working on the character and I start massaging the character. And then I start to realize, oh crap, I have empathy for the character. And then I develop more and more empathy and I'm like, oh crap, that character is part of me. Um, the character may never really grow in the story, may still be a piece of crap in the story, but I develop empathy for why they're not good people. Um, but as far as the layers of an evil person having virtue and a virtuous person having evil, I think it's, I, I, I want to tackle both of those. Both of those intrigue me uh, to no end because there is a flip side to everything. There's, so it's, um, it's uh, and, I, and I don't think, I, I would, I, actually the virtuous person who has, who's not getting in touch with the evil would intrigue me more than working with, on an evil person that uh, has virtue because there's, um, they're, they're, with the with a virtuous person, they're they're actively pushing down that evil, where with with an evil person, they're actively going, "I'm virtuous." No, really, I'm virtuous. 
Can you think of any characters that bring to mind that are evil that you actually have empathy for? I know a lot of people have talked about the Joker, but that you go, you know what, maybe this person, there's, there's you have some soft spot for that person. Yeah, well, the evil characters, I mean, for the most part, the antagonist, um, if it's a like, a like a superhero movie or a James Bond or a Mission Impossible, the, the antagonist has to be more interesting than the hero, I think. Uh, that, the, the layer's got to be there. And then then we're like, how is the hero going to get through this? Um, so I find uh, the it, do, do I have empathy for the for the hero for the antagonist um, in those kind of hero type movies? Um, I think I just get a kick out of how evil they are, and I'm like happy they're evil because I'm sitting there enjoying their evilness and how how is Tom Cruise going to get through blank blank blank. Um, you know, in the in those in those total formula movies that I just adore beyond belief. I know they're not going to die at the end. That's not the question. The question is, how are they not going to die? That's what that's what keeps us watching. Why is evil important in storytelling? I think we're intrigued with evil. Evil. Uh, I think if we, I mean, you know, I grew up in a very religious household, so there's the Bible. The Bible is just all evil. This is bad. This is bad. This is bad. Don't do this. And there's there's a lot of and then they go through this. There's so many evil stories in the Old Testament. You're like, wait, God's telling you to kill your own son? <laughs> you know, there's there's um, I think our collective mythology has just a ton of evil in it, and um, it, it, we may try to paint it as like, oh no no, we're all good, we're all good, but you think about you know how we got here and what's going on, and uh, evil is the theme. Uh, you know, Genghis Kong, man, you know, that guy's a hero of his narrative, but what did he do? Um, actually, I can't remember. What did he do? <laughs> he pillaged, he pillaged and, you know, it's like uh, the Norwegians, uh, the Vikings, you know, what did they do? You know, oh, they were, they're heroes of their own stories, but they're decimating cultures. So um, I, I think, uh, I think it's a general narrative of what, uh, what we should explore, um, and that's and then how and then how are we coping with the evil around us? And then how are we coping? How are we coping with empathizing with evil things? You know, and there's times when there's beautiful times when I have evil thoughts, even if I'm just driving around Los Angeles, and I'm like, that person who cut me off probably shouldn't exist on this earth. There's a little joy to having that fantasy, even though we don't act out the fantasy, but we do get to write down the fantasy. So uh, I, I think, I don't think, um, you know, we, we don't go through the whole day with all virtuous thoughts. I was, I was just at Starbucks getting a cup of coffee and this idiot in front of me is like, had this huge, two different credit cards, <laughs> you know, all these, all these stipulations to his order. All he got was one drink and one thing. I thought he was an Uber Eats guy. And this guy is just bum, 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 and I'm going, and I'm sitting there going, that guy might be, you know, it's part of the human collective. He may be dispensable. And then it's just, you know, it's, it's a fun thought to think about. But in real life, we never do it. And then if I followed him home, I would see that he's a good father to his kids, and he was just having a rough day. So that's, you know, there's, there's, um, evil and there's empathy we need we need the whole we i guess we need the whole story and that's why we tell the story we need the whole story to map out the the whys of uh he was the antagonist 
in my life for five minutes because my venti coffee was late. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I talk about going way out. <laughs> no, I I saw someone at a store the other day trying to return something, but quote didn't have the credit card. Yeah. And was arguing, and the workers were very nice, and they said, "I'm really sorry, sir. If you come back with the credit card, you'll be fine." No, no, no. I need service, and and wouldn't take no for an answer. And in that moment. I'm looking at the person like, okay, this is weird and doesn't seem right. But who knows? Maybe legitimately it didn't have the credit card and it just, he had the receipt. Or they shouldn't be on this earth anymore. <laughs> they had all this stuff. But it, my, my point is, yeah. I mean, we, we, we see, uh, we used to see tabloids and we would see evil there. And now we can go on social media and now we're all judges of what's evil. Um, even if it's one video of somebody pushing someone in a convenience store yeah. and we don't know what happened on the other end to prompt. We don't know. We just see that one snippet, you know, and so now we're watching evil played out in, in real life, quote unquote, but we don't know who really was the offending party, who was the first one to sort of prompt something. So, and that's just, that's, that's really intriguing because that's all point of view. So we're getting, we're getting, uh, everyone tells their own truth. And I'd rather have I'd rather have that in fiction and on the page and be able to work it than to uh, try to understand the real uh, social media conflicts that we get. You know, that's where I'm just like uh, I I'm skeptical of all of them. Is it healthy for writers to go to dark places? I used to think that it was important to live. Um, I one of my favorite writers is William T. Volman, and he's a guy that would go to the, would stay in the Tenderloin and stay at a um, house to, you know, and, and do crack. And um, he, and he's actively said these things. So I'm not, but it's, I even interviewed him. It's, <laughs> um, it's published, but he would actively go to these places. And, and I thought, you know what? I need to do what he does. Not, not to the crack end, but I needed I want needed to be around certain elements that were dark in order to get inspiration. And I I realized I don't. I really don't. Um it's uh there there's dark everywhere. It uh, we don't need to seek it out. There's 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 dark amongst us. Um and you know, it's and maybe that's why Volman's written so many more great books than I've ever written. Maybe he, maybe maybe I'm doing it wrong and he's doing it right when he goes. Um, I mean, he's he embeds himself in war and does a lot of he's 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 uh, what he does is gets there and feels it and needs to know the whole story. But that's what he's writing. I'm not writing that, and I don't need to. I don't need to essentially try to lose my mind if I'm working on a character that's trying to lose their mind that that's losing their mind, and then go, wait a second, I need therapy three times a week now. Uh, it's just, I think what I need to do is to, uh, and what all writers need to do is just go, what's my personality? Who am I? I don't need to try to be someone else. I, you know, I would love to be a Volman, but I'm not a Volman. So it's uh, within my parameters and my daily life, the dark doesn't, the dark comes to us no matter what. I, I don't, it's, Anyone who seems as privileged and you know wealthy and thing and it seems like they have it all together. No, there's dark there. They don't need to go move into a dark area. They they have a wealth of um, they have a wealth of material that they can build from from their own experience. And yeah. 
Sure. So the sort of gonzo journalism, uh, Hunter S. Thompson approach, you don't have to necessarily take that. But what about recounting dark stories? Do you find sometimes with your students that they have a tough time or there's others that they can't turn it off, that they, it's like flows like a, a bad faucet? Well, the, the, the problem with the true stories that come in with my students is they say, oh, no, this really happened and this is true. And I'm like, but it's not interesting enough. You're not you're not putting enough conflict in there. Uh, so it's usually this happened and this made me really upset. And I'm like, OK, yeah, but make me care so you can it could be based on something true. But to make that particular event that was true to you and dark to you to, to make it universal, you're going to have to really kind of dissect it. You're going to have to move maneuver it around. You're going to have to um, play with it and massage it to get the essence of what happened. We need the emotional essence of what happened. We don't need the play-by-play. -play. So when it comes to true things that happen, I think a lot of the times when I'm dealing with students is get out of the play-by-play. -play. What's the what's the what's the emotional effect that you're trying to get through? Because that's more. There's more truth to um, conveying the emotion than just showing the play-by-play. Because -play. we want to get to the hearts of our uh, of our uh, readers and audience. Do you think that sometimes we think a story is interesting and it's not, it's not really that, or, or, or that any, any story can be interesting, even if it's just someone waiting in line for coffee and there's a, a person who's paying with two credit cards and needing special attention? Um, yeah, it's, uh, I think, um, I think every story is interesting, but it has, that's when the idea, that's when the idea comes up. This idea sounds good, but it has to be put on the page. The The idea that's not put on the page is not a fleshed out idea. So um, there, uh, who wrote that book? Uh, it was, the whole book is, the timeline of the book is a guy on an escalator going down or up the escalator. I think it's called Mezzanine, and I can't remember the author's name right now. Um, and that sounds like a very boring book. If you were to pitch that, oh yeah, this whole book is based on a guy going down an escalator in a mall. Um, that's like, well, that doesn't sound interesting. Put it on the page though, craft it, and it becomes something that people are uh, engaged with. So I think we can knock out our, you know, we, I, I, I find joy in, in the most mundane things and then I'll write them down and then as, as I keep writing them and massaging them, then I'll be like, oh wait, there is something in there. There's something in the mundane. Oh, that's cool, but it ha I mean, it has to be written uh, for uh, for anything to happen. That's so, you know, if I were to write that story about the guy at Starbucks, um, probably most of the story would be based on what a terrible I, what person I am. But from, but not, you know, I that's how I would approach it. But I wouldn't approach it from that point of view. I would approach it as the hero of the story. But it would be dissecting everything that's terrible about my thought process while as I'm writing the protagonist, that's me, um, that protagonist is not gonna know that their thought process is terrible. And then that's where comedy will probably come in because it'll, the, the, or, you know, the urge to do all these certain things. I'll look back at it and I'll be like, that's when I find the empathy in other people and I, know, and I realize the stupidity of myself and the stupidity is glorious. And it's just it's like this, this, pre, presumptu this presumptuous, you know, 
who am I to judge? And it's just like, that's, that's, I think that's the juice. That's a lot of fun for me. What is plot? Great question. Plot is conflict. Um, so we need the character first. I, I, for me, I always need the character first. Sometimes though, I do come up with a, with a situation first. And plot's kind of a situation, but we do have to put the character in the situation. So we put a character in a situation and the character has a goal. And you go, great, the character has a goal. And then the character moves forward to that goal and we throw obstacles at that character and that's plot. How is the character going to move through those obstacles? Will they, will they make the right or wrong decision? Will they learn from that decision? That's, that's essentially what plot is to me is throwing obstacles at the character and then seeing how they get out of them for better or for worse and then how they move on to the next scene. So that's when, uh, that's, that's, that's when the beauty of creating the plot and essentially creating the three act structure that kind of turns into this huge showdown at the end, but we need to know how the character gets in and out of obstacles throughout the whole uh, movie and then that's when that's that's adding to the plot, and it's all pointing to one direction when we get to that when we get to that showdown. So, how would you teach plot right now? If if I'm a new student in the class and I don't know what that is, um, sure, like a sort of a, a Reader's Digest version of. Uh... I, I like to come up. I like to come up with um, really lame, like, like the lamest situation. Like I'll say, so let's say your character. Uh, wants a wants to buy gum, okay? Great. That's you know any because any any goal, as long as the character is totally invested in the goal, makes sense. So, the character wants to rule all of the world. Great. If the character wants to stick a gum, great. But at the, but the, it needs to mean just as much to that character to get that stick of gum. So let's get them a stick of gum. Great. The store's across the street. Now. Um, as your character walks, walks to get that stick of gum, what can you do to make it harder for them to get that stick of gum? And then I throw it to my students. And it's just like, let's just be absurd. Let's be totally absurd. What would you do? I get a baseball bat and I knock them in the knees. Great, knock them in the knees. Beat those, beat those kneecaps out. But that character still needs that gum and we're gonna love that character for using his elbows to try to get to that store, to get to the gum. What can we do next? And so we can create a, um, we're creating plot by just throwing essentially, uh, you know, rocks at this character who wants something so bad. Um, and it's, so the, that's what, there's a lot of fun. I have a lot of fun discussing plot with my students because it's just like, let's come up with the silliest scenarios. And then great, now when you go to your scene where the woman wants the wants the man to ask her on a date, but she's not sure what he thinks of him. And the, the, the stakes are just as high as if someone wants a piece of gum or someone wants to be the ruler of the world. Now, what are the obstacles you're gonna put in? And then when they have a character worksheet, they know the flaws and the strengths of their characters, then they know how to like bring all of that in, heighten it beyond belief. And then we, we're gonna watch that scene and be like, is he gonna ask her out or not? Uh, so that's essentially plot to me. Okay, and then should I be writing this like sidebar thing that no one's going to see that I'm going to know about the convenience store clerk? 
And that's going to help set up the, maybe the tension in the scene. So our protagonist is going to run in and they're going to fumble for change for this gum. And there's going to be something about this clerk that's going to now add new conflict. Maybe that clerk used to be a CEO and they were let go. And, and, and this is a job they got. And they remember this person because that was one of their employees. And now, I, I mean, I mean, so, but, but necessarily the, or the, the audience won't know that I have all this backstory, but there's going to be a tension there. Yeah. And as long as I, I feel like as long as the story stays on the protagonist who wants the gum, and then this is another, this is another obstacle. So they actually make it to the store after all of my, all of my students have thrown in all their, uh, you know, we're going to take out his tongue and his teeth. He won't be able to chew gum. Okay. What are we going to do there? Um, and then, yeah, you add even more attention when we get to the store, we can have, we can have another antagonist of sorts, uh, blocking the actual getting of the gum or, or the, the, maybe we, maybe the protagonist gets a helper. Maybe the clerk is a helper in the situation. Oh, and then we, and, um, cause our, you know, our heroes do need helpers along the way. And then, um, but then we'll lose that helper, but it's, and that's when we have the victories and the losses. If we give too much losses, if, if we're throwing too much loss at a character, then, um, then we'll lose our audience. But we get that character, that victory It's like, oh, the gum. Great. What's next? Um, that's what we, we need. We need to ask the question, what's next? And we also need to give them a, we need to give them a moment to breathe and go, ah, we got the gum, you know, and then, uh, I, I don't know where to go from there. And because that's such a simplistic story, but that's, yeah, that's the victories and losses. And when I work with my students, when they do their beat sheets, I try to, I'm like, note where the victories are, note where, note where your breaths are. Cause you need to give your character a, oh, all right, I got this. And, but that's the last thing they got because the next thing's coming up and gonna hit them even harder. And it's like, whew, fix that. And then boom, next, so. So do you find a lot of uh, writers, maybe they're more intermediate, they're, they're not letting it breathe enough? They, they know, uh, hey, I need conflict and I need it by this point, but now they're, they're infusing too much conflict? I, it's, I think it's better to have more conflict than less because it's, it's, it's a lot of fun to throw the conflict in there and then pull it out and go, that's too much. That's too much. Um, where, uh, yeah. And, and sometimes people will ask, it feels so manufactured. And I'm like, it is manufactured. You know, it, it feels fake. It is fake. <laughs> it's, it's just like, it, this isn't, this isn't real life. This it, go ahead and feel awkward about it not feeling real because you just keep crafting it and crafting it and in the world of, in the building of the world of, and this is one I, you know, people talk about world building in science fiction movies or other things. There's world building in romantic comedies. There's world building in every single movie. So build that world, stay in the confines of the world, and then, um, yeah, and, and let them run, let, let, the, let the characters run. 
Right, because if you want to go to you know, Mystic Pizza or Pretty Woman or whatever, that, I mean, there was world building and all that. You have a small New England town, mm -hmm. this restaurant. You got, is it Conchita Farrell? She was like, the, she ran the restaurant. And it's, you know, it's kind of a fun atmosphere, but it's no nonsense. And and the, they're waiting for this food critic to come in that they're all terrified of that's going to either make or break the restaurant. So, you know, they're getting ready before the shift. They're polishing whatever. Um, and so now we feel like, okay, I'm in this small town. I know that this restaurant means everything mm -hmm. to this owner. And, and you know, they're, they're, when, when the food critic comes in, they're all smiles and it's probably overly, you know, they're giving too much attention. Yeah. So um, I'm not even sure where I'm going with that. I think I just well, I explained think, all of Mystic Pizza. Sorry. Right. <laughs> well, and I still need to watch the film. Actually. Oh, okay. I feel oh, bad. Yeah, please. I need to watch it. But, <laughs> but you, said, uh, you, you, you said exactly the thing. Um, it's, it's the, um, it's everything they want. It's their whole, the, the character, we don't need to know that they have these other wants in their lives. You know, are they sexually satisfied in this relationship that we're not seeing off screen? Who cares? We need to know that that restaurant critic coming in is the most important piece of their life. Sure. Sure. And there might be a little bit of that in Mystic Pizza too. Oh, is there? Oh, cool. I can't yeah. wait. Yeah. You'll have to turn <laughs> What do you say to writers who tell you that plot doesn't matter? There are writers who say plot doesn't matter. There might be. <laughs> um, I think, well, I, I was thinking, well, you asked me, like, think of some movies that meant everything to you uh, in one of our email exchanges. And I was thinking of Stranger Than Paradise, the Jim Jarmusch film. And, um, and the reason that meant everything to me is because I saw it when I was a kid on the PBS affiliate in San Francisco, Channel 9. KQED. For, yes, yep. for some odd reason, they <laughs> they showed it over and over again. They said, this is only 67 takes and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but it made me realize that a movie is a craft and not just, it, that's when I kind of, that's when I got the separation, went, oh, wow. And like a movie like that seems plotless and a lot of it is plotless to an extent. Or is it? I'm, I'm, am I thinking of the one where they ha they open with the two Elvis enthusiasts on the train, the Jim Jarmusch That's film? Uh, Mystery Train. Oh, okay, because I love that one too. Yeah. And, and then they go in this hotel and okay, right, right. 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 Um, no, that's a lot more. That is a lot more plot. This is the one with uh, John Lurie and um, where they're just his Hungarian cousin comes to stay with him in uh, Brooklyn, and it's. Uh, yeah, it's like there's plot in there. So I, it's um, I like what what film wouldn't have? What, can you think of a film that doesn't have plot? Okay, I know I'm not supposed to use this reference. Dinner with Andre, my dinner with Andre. Okay. Does that have plot? I haven't seen it. You haven't seen it. Okay, well there. It, <laughs> but I, but, but I can't I use that reference anymore. But I think there. But I think I I know the you know I know the actors in it, and I remember seeing clips of it. They do want something. That's true. And if they want something. Do they get it? Are they are they are they having a conversation where they, um, where they shift the um, where they where they shift the idea in the other person's mind, uh, where the other person has a, oh I didn't think of it that way moment, um, or are they just kind of coming at each other with this is me this is me this is me this is me, um, so yeah. Well, that's why I haven't seen my dinner with Andre because oh. there's no plot. Why would I watch that? No. Apparently, it did very well. But, uh, <laughs> but I'm just th that I'm just thinking of that from from a long time ago. But 
Yeah, it's. I mean, and that's just. It's. It's hard to come up with an example of of a movie that doesn't really have plot, even if it's. You know, I love. I love slow Scandinavian films. I love. I, there's this author T. Singer that I read his books and they're about nothing. <laughs> and it just it brings me absolute joy. And the plot is like a little bit. Um, there's even there's even YouTube channels that show Norwegian trains just going from Oslo to Bergen. And I'll watch it. And so it's there it might be there's no plot there, but there is forward momentum. There's no obstacles, but there's forward momentum. Um, so maybe that's maybe that's the um, an example of a reason not to have plot. Uh, I you know where yeah I'll watch something, but I think I watch it more for artistic reasons than I do for like oh my god I can't wait till they I can't wait till they get to you know uh, Stavanger. It's, no, I barely care. So it, I think I think I don't care, but I enjoy, if that makes sense. Yeah, there's great uh, Norwegian um, or, or Scandinavian in general YouTube channels where they mm -hmm. talk about you know different Christmas uh, you know customs and things like that, and they are really fascinating to watch how they put it together. Yeah, it's very yeah. artistic. No, I could watch dolphins just go in and out of the water for two hours, and that'll be, you know, the, the March of the Penguins. I mean. What a beautiful film! Uh, there, you know, I, I, if I remember right, there is plot to it because they are going somewhere to. I think it's it's all about the reproduction and the likes they have to take. So there are very high stakes in the March of the Penguins, and it's presented to us in a, you know, kind of a lighthearted way. But um, but there's still stakes there. Yeah, I think uh, I I would not be interested in filmmakers who don't who think that there's no reason for plot. Um, that even, even a photographer has to have uh, a plot. You know, a photographer is telling a story. They're, 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 trying, to frame a, they're trying to frame a photo. They're, they're looking for conflict. They're looking for, they're looking for how, how to present it. And it, it just may, you know, then to one person that just like, oh, it's a picture of a face. But if you talk to the photographer, they'll tell you what the, um, what the tension is. And then, so that we do need tension, I think. For those writers that do believe in, in plot, when it comes to plot, how can a writer figure out what isn't working? For, uh, um, it's, I think that's in later rewrites, throw it all in there. And then, um, and then, and what I, what I do is I, is, uh, after I, I outline more after than I do before. So then I outline the scenes and I kind of, I, I want the, I want the scenes to, um, you know, I, I kind of think of it as a DJ. So, you know, the, the, the heavy conflict here is a nine and then let's get it back down to a four. Then let's bring it up to a seven. As you know, it's, uh, I used to DJ at bars and stuff too in San Francisco with my crates of vinyl. I want to keep the dance floor going. So how do I keep the dance floor going? I can't, you know, smash cut, you know, uh, you know, uh, I'm blanking on it. Fiona Apple to ACDC. I probably can, but but how does how do they stay on the dance floor? So then they go buy more drinks. So I get more money at the end of the night from the place. Um, so I think it's just about it's about curating the scenes and then um 
and and just and and also the scene has to make as you get towards your final draft the scene has to make a case for itself is this does this scene even make it into the movie and it and i find it really intriguing that this yes it makes it into the movie yes it gets shot yes it gets into post and even those scenes get cut and um and so the there's there's a reason those scenes are written even if we have to take them out when we're in the screenwriting process there's a reason those scenes are filmed even if they have to be taken out during post-production and i don't know what that reason is and there's probably producers going we're losing money when you do this <laughs> but at the same time those actors have to the actor and director have to work through that scene that never makes it into the movie but that may inform how another scene is shot or how a character come an actor comes at uh their angle on another scene and for some i i feel like there's no um there there you know there's a lot on the there's a there's a lot of pages that you wrinkle up and throw away and you're just like that didn't work but you need it to get to where it works you you need it you need those and you need to embrace those pages and you need and you just go wow yeah you almost have to say thank you to the bad writing because the bad writing gets you to the good stuff. Would you play closing time at the end of your DJ sets? I yeah. I, the last I mean I haven't DJed in so many years, but the <laughs> but the last ones I did um, was uh, I'd throw on a Frank Sinatra or a Tom Jones. Oh wow! A, after you know after I've kept the whole dance floor going, and it's just kind of like now we're mellowing out, you know, uh. now we're bringing it down. Okay, so you're, as the bartenders are trying to do all their work to clean up, and it's the last call, ding, last call, and I'm just like. <laughs> so in, in a movie, though, you're also you're you're winding down the audience, whether it's a happy yes. wind down or or a sad one, or in some foreign films, sort of an ambiguous ending where we don't really know. Right. When it comes to plot, and then the wind down happens, and we're a few minutes from the end. Um, is there really a bad ending? Is there an ending that this is not textbook how it should have ended? You know, if if, if it's a happy story, sad, whatever. Yeah, as I think, um, I'm trying to. There's there's a film I just watched where I was like, oh, that ending was so horrible. I can't remember what film it was. Darn it! And it was a good film. Um, and there's a lot of films I really love, and I'm like, oh, you blew it in the ending. Um, and uh, but as far as like as far as the the stakes of Act Three and the stakes of the high tension, and then we need the breath. We all need to sit in it. We all kind of need to sit and relax and go, "Wow!" And we have to do that with the characters on the screen and with everyone. There's a there's a movie that I bring to class, all, especially my beginning classes. I make everyone. And I, I've watched this hundreds of times because I make everyone uh, completely dissect every single scene in it. And it's Little Miss Sunshine. And in Little Miss Sunshine, I actually have the, I get the DVDs in the movie because I don't like, you know, so I'm the DVD collector. But they also have the extras on there and they have the deleted scenes. And there was like one or two extra scenes at the end of the movie that they completely shot um, where there was like, where they're like, well, that was crazy. They're, they're, a, they're like at a, a rest stop and they're all on a bench and they're all talking. Everything's just gone great. And said, so, oh, what? do you want a hamburger? And they shot this whole scene, but the end of the movie is the bus driving away. And, uh, you know, it's the, some pe sometimes you don't know what the end of the movie is, 
until it's way in post-production. Uh, and, and they didn't know. They thought they needed these tag-ons. There's, there's a lot of times where um, filmmakers feel like they need to, uh, to hold the hand of the audience a little more. And the audience can hold their own hand a lot of times. The audience can get it. Uh, we don't have to, um, we don't have to, uh, kind of push it on them. Now feel like this. It's just like, no, stop. That, that was good enough. You're, you're fine. Uh, take a breath and think about that. So. I like that. Is, do you think that just only comes from seeing the actors play out that scene? That it's hard to tell on the page? Um, I don't know if it's hard. Yeah, it could be hard to tell on the page and... We're just trying to write the best story we can with, um, with, it's funny. So with Confessions of a Teenage Jesus Jerk, I was from the final draft, I was very adamant about the ending. Um, and I was like, this is the ending. This is it. And, uh, and there was a, a scene that was um, asked to, for afterwards. And I'm just like, no, <laughs> I didn't want to write it. And I, and it had to be written and then they shot it and then it, it didn't make the film. It didn't make the final cut. And for some odd reason, maybe it did need to be shot. So maybe, you know, maybe I, I've done so many things wrong and my approach has been, you know, sometimes my approach isn't the greatest approach. Sometimes I could be a little friendlier and a little more amicable and go, oh, you're right. Let's just do that and see what happens. Um, but with this, I was so sure that that was the end, but the, the people involved weren't sure. And it's okay that they're not sure. And so just let people not be sure. And then, you know, pray and post that it, it all works out. And, and it may have been that, you know, depending on how the tone of the film went, because when that edit, when it's in the editing room, it's being the whole story is being told again by an editor. So um, they may have needed to get that on camera just in case they kept different scenes in there or they had to lose scenes. And but the to get the whole tone of the film, they went, nope, that was the ending. Um, so there's there's so many elements to how to end a movie. I mean, I guess there's, there it's and so much is at stake. So on the page, the best you can do. And then does it end up in the final cut? Who knows? Um, because there's so many, uh, you know, there's so many factors involved. So. so that's interesting. You you resisted sort of the suggested ending. They wanted an extra scene at the end, and then it ended up not happening. And you ended up agreeing that that was actually a good thing to have that extra scene. No, no, they shot the scene, and it, and then but but I won, and then I won because. They, that scene hit the cutting room floor, so the movie ended exactly as I wanted it to end. Does that make sense? Yeah, and yeah. I wasn't sure if you wanted the cutting room floor one. You no. actually agreed with. Them. Oh, okay, that's no, no, no. I still, ah. I did, I still didn't agree. Mm, okay. And when I, when, when I was sent the rough cut, oh. as I was coming to the end, um, I was going. Yeah, the, the, I had a, I had a cut to black. It was cut to black. I'm like cut to black, cut to black, cut to black, <laughs> and a boom, cut to black, and I was like, yes. <laughs> so um, it was, uh, you know, and there were and there were other battles that I had where I was like, oh, this is right, and you don't cut, and then, and I was totally wrong, and so it's it. There's that's the beauty of the 
the collaboration of um, have those disagreements um, because as the writer, you know, oh yeah, I can like pretend like I know everything, but I don't. Once you, once you're once you're on set, once you're with a director, once you're seeing actors, it it's you you really got to kind of let things go. And uh, yeah, the only thing I was so I was really adamant about was how the how it was going to end, and I just I saw that from the beginning, and um, and it wasn't it didn't make anyone feel comfortable. So maybe everyone needed to feel comfortable. And then they went, no, wait, that's right. The ending is um, the cut to black. How did fear of success almost ruin your writing career? Oh, fear of success ruins my writing career every day. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, it's, there's, uh, there's multiple fears. There's fear of success, there's fear of failure. Um, and I think I still self-sabotage myself. Uh, I have to get into a world of, um, it's a weird world of delusion where it's, I know I'm writing the greatest thing ever told to man and through all of human history, except it's also a piece of crap at the same time. Um, so, you know, fear, I mean, I guess there's, there's fear of success and fear of failure. Yeah, it, it was, I, I used to, I used to write everything with an Oscar speech planned. Uh, and, and that Oscar speech was more of who, you know, it wasn't who I was gonna thank, it was who I hated. And I was just gonna tell, I was gonna bring all my resentments out, you know, and it's, it's, uh, it's silly and it's absurd to think about, but it, it would be fun to do an Oscar speech. But then you kind of look at it and go, yeah, but, would it be really fun to go to the Oscars? Uh, um, but yeah, fear fear of success. Uh, it's weird because I've I've had very minor success. I don't I don't have a I, you know I don't feel like I have. I feel grateful for the success I've had, but in my very minor success, it's sometimes it's a little disconcerting, uh, where um, where it's just like oh crap yeah that's out there for people to see, oh. Um, and I forget, uh, and, but at the same time, that's wonderful. So what a, you know, what a bourgeois problem that is. <laughs> Are you going to go to Starbucks and pay with two credit cards after this? Or? I'm going to pay with two credit cards. <laughs> I'm going to ask for water and they're going to put ice in it. And I'm going to be like, you're going to have to take this back and not put ice in this. Okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you almost feel guilty if things go well for you? What? Yes. Oh my God. I have therapy tomorrow too. And we're going to talk about all of this. <laughs> I, th I think a lot of that though, it does have to do with, I grew up a Jehovah's witness. So, um, there is a lot of guilt in succeeding, especially in the entertainment industry. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of fear involved. I'm working through that actually constantly. I'm working through the mud, the murk and the mud of growing up uh, in a way where I was supposed to be not part of this world and I wasn't supposed to buy into any of it and my whole life was supposed to be devoted to the church. So um, I've been out for many years, but it's still back there and I still it still comes up. So, um, and not that my story is totally unique. I think a lot of people have a, have a rough time with it because especially, you know, you come from a working class family and, you know, it's, my grandfather, 
uh, Grandpa Duchesne. I, you know, he lived a mile away from me in San Francisco. In the last five years of his life, I stopped talking to him because I would go over there and he'd, he would um, insult me for my uh, choices, insult me for writing, didn't understand why I didn't have a union job like he had. And, um, and it was constantly insulting. And, I was, and I'm like, I have enough of my own self-doubt. I don't need to be put down so much. So I basically cut him off out of my life. And, um, and it was, it's sad, but I had to do it because he wanted me to just be weighed down. And, and plus, he doesn't understand. There's not, there's not a lot of money coming in. This is, this is all an act of faith, but it's also not even an act of faith. It's a, um, it's a, it's a half to when you realize you're a writer, you have to write and it doesn't matter if anything gets published and it doesn't matter. It's, I'm a crappy person if I'm not actively writing and in order to not be a crappy person in this world, I'm going to keep writing and then I'll be nicer to be around. <laughs> so. Interesting. So when you see a student in one of your classes or a Zoom, you know, sort of relationship and you can tell like this person has some talent and mm -hmm. just needs some refining. But I'm seeing they almost they feel guilty about it. like they feel like shameful that they have talent. What, what, do you, what do you do to help them sort of come out of that? Or you don't you figure that's their own process. You don't want to rush it. Yeah, I, I mean, I, well, there's great talented people that come through um i'm there i'm there to i'm there to help them with their craft and i'm there to give them and to cheerlead them but at the same time i'm also not their therapist so if they if they have guilt if they you know i can come back i can come in with hey this is what how this is what i've worked through and this is and i usually and this is what a lot of writers work through i'm, I'm i get to you know i get to interview best-selling authors all the time and they always feel like they have imposter syndrome they can have 22 best-selling books out that blank page still scares the crap out of them. But the one thing that they have ahead of the person that has never written a book is they remember the 22 bestsellers, every blank page scared the crap out of them and then it went to a bestseller. So they know, I remember this feeling and I'm still gonna do it. Uh, and I think that's essentially all writing is to uh, just know that it doesn't feel good for a while. And then it feels good here and there. And then it doesn't feel good. Uh, and it's, uh, yeah, I wish it was sexier than that, but it's not. <laughs> and you said just jokingly, you always feel shame writing something. Why is that? Uh, was, was that a Freudian slip? <laughs> um, I don't know if I, I don't always feel shame. I just think that there's just a feeling of, um, it's it's a it's a it's the working class in me. It's the working class family background. It's why are my hands not calloused, and why are my joints not aching at the end of the day, um, where um, I've 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 completely ruined the tradition of the Duchesnes. Um, I'm not monkey wrenching under a car. Um, monkey wrenching with a with a light felted pen on a, <laughs> on a legal paper and you know you can actually make money and a living doing this how absurd is this it's uh so maybe maybe my joke was probably more uh because i was hiding the fact that uh 
I, I, it's not, it's just weird to be a writer in, from where I've grown up. It's, it's weird to do anything that's not, um, mechanical or, you know, has, has union, has, uh, you know, very strong union, that, uh, so-called strong union that, but I wasn't sure if you meant to also exposing uh, thoughts and things about yourself that even if they aren't really that, you know, controversial, that it's just you're, you're letting people know your thought process. Right. So um, that shame I kind of don't have uh, because my philosophy is if it scares me, it's the right thing. So I'll write things that scare me. I'll write things that I don't want anyone to ever know about me in my life. And... But when I have that feeling of, oh my God, nobody could ever know this, that's when I know I have to write it. That's, that's when I know I have to go there. And it's just hilarious that once those things come out, people go, I've, I feel that way too. Uh, and and it's, everyone is just like, how did you write that? I can never write that. But I feel the exact same way. So um, the, the beauty of go, just going to the scary places, I think that's, that's what I, I don't enjoy it. But I do it, and when I'm when I'm scared to do it, I know I'm doing something right. I'm, I know I'm heading in a good direction. What's more difficult, writing a novel or writing a screenplay? Oh, good question. They're they're both very different for me. For so for me, I always write. I write out scenes, so I don't write. A, I don't go straight to the screenplay. I handwrite the whole scene, and then I can. I, then I convert it to the screenplay. So I'm kind of always adapting um, prose to a script, which is probably the worst way to write a script, but it's kind of the way I approach it. So for me, the novel is always, um, the novel is always most important to me. If someone said, you, 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 gotta, you gotta make a choice right now. Are you writing novels for the rest of your life? Or are you writing screenplays for the rest of your life? I, immediately novels, that's it, I'm good. Um, but. I love film and I love the art of screenwriting. Um, and I, they both have their challenges the, the and, they, and, they, and they're both beautiful in their own ways. The, be the beauty of the novel is if you screw up a novel, you screwed up the novel and your name is on that. If, you make, if it's a great novel, it's a great novel and your name is on that. So when you're the screenwriter, if the movie doesn't do that well, there's hundreds of people that could have, you know, been part of the problem. If the movie does great, there's hundreds of people that could have been part of the greatness. Uh, so there, it's, it's, one's a team sport and one's a solo sport. Um, I, I can, in both of them, in screenwriting, it's a solo sport when you're writing your script. So I thrive in that. And then, but I also thrive in, um, Problem solving. I want them to go through and give me notes and go, you know, scene 23, cut that out. Scene 42, we need this. And I'm like, great. And I need to know my screenplay back and forth. So I'll be like, scene 23, we cut that out. That means that we're going to lose scene 18 and in the breadcrumb from scene three. And so it's, I love getting in the technical part of that. And I guess I do it with both. Um, I don't. I don't find, um, I don't, you know, they're, they're both separate, but they're both so the same because we're both, they're both putting it on the page, if that makes sense. So with screenwriting, it's like a game of Jenga. So if you're pulling something from the bottom, that that's not going to make sense and, and the whole thing could topple. 
unless it's properly weighted, it's got to be it's got to be constructed properly, or else yeah, the yeah. whole thing's going to fall down. Yeah. Same with the novel. I mean, you could totally screw up a novel by, you know, going going too much or too little. There's the the technicals of it are similar. It's uh, they just both have to be crafted, um, and the the beauty the beauty of cinema is I mean. And we, I think I, I see it a lot. You see bad screenplays that are good films because the directors and the actors come in. And if you just really sat there and read the screenplay and then you watch what the actors and the directors brought to it and you go, wow, what a crap screenplay, but what a beautiful film. And um, there's, there's a lot of bad screenwriters out there that make great movies. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's such an interesting game, yeah. What about prose writing and thought process versus screenwriting and thought process in terms of showing the characters going through something in their mind? They, yeah, that's when. So when we're when we're on the screenplay, that's when, um, th that's when we have to show uh, we we show a lot less. There's a lot more breathing room. So uh, the the novel. Where we're bringing we're bringing the reader through the novel and through all the internal process thought processes, in the screenplay, we're taking the characters there, but we also have to let the director do their job and the actors do their job, and we just kind of have to and just give a little bit of intention, a little bit of note. This happens. This happens. They don't need to in the novel. It could be oh why this happened, and it, it could go around this way. But it's it's um, get the essence of it. You just really put the emotional essence in there, and not too much emotional essence, because let let the let everyone um, let everyone do their job, and they're gonna and the and the the great directors do great work, and the great actors do great work. And if you do put too much in there, you could be uh, impeding what they need to do on uh, on their end as as part of their job. Do novels and screenplays have the same structure? Uh, screenplays are, I don't know, because you can really screw around with a novel structure. You can't screw around with the screenwriting structure. And anyone who's like, um, oh, wow, this is experimental, and you look at it, and, and you go, no, that's still three acts, and I can tell you exactly where those act breaks are. Because um, it's hard to break that pattern. We know we've been told these stories through film for over a century a certain way and if you know if the first act goes 45 minutes the audience may not understand that the first act is going 45 minutes but they'll understand that there's something wrong with the film and i think i could just go to the bathroom and get a some popcorn right now um, and they won't know why um, so we are really structured to have uh the the hero on the singular journey for the most part and the act breaks and the escalating attention as it is with, you know, with the novel, you can, uh, Daniel Efsky's house of leaves, just that, that book right there, just, you know, that turns the novel on its side, but it's a novel. Uh, we can really, there's so much you can do to a novel that, uh, that can't be done on screen as there's so much you can do on screen that can't be done to a novel. I mean, you can, there's, you know, you, you don't describe an actor 
I mean, you don't in the you don't describe a character feeling sad and why they feel sad. All you got to do is see a look. All you need is a reaction on an actor's face, and that will tell you what five pages of the novel can tell you. So, the, and that's when it's beautiful um, on the screen, and then when it's beautiful in the book too. Yeah, I've been um, looking at Walter Tevis's, uh, so the Hustler, and then um, the Queen's Gambit, and then. Um, I, you know, it's been a while since I've actually seen The Hustler, mm -hmm. but then seeing Queen's Gambit and just, just the differences, just kind of like there, a lot of it was very close to the novel. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was cleaned up. There were parts that were cleaned up more, um, maybe for certain audiences um, with the Queen's Gambit for for the series. It wasn't as um, there were some details that were maybe too, uh, you know, sexually explicit or whatever. Um, but, um, you know, so just... Did she still see the uh, chess on the roof in the she book? She did, yeah. Oh, cool. I think so, yeah, but yeah. it wasn't totally... I mean, it was it was the... Because that was where she took these these pills that yeah. where she, you know, went into this world, and that's how she kind of disassociated and was able to take herself out of the world of the orphanage and bad situations, and she would see that as a way to um, not be in her reality. Yeah. And so um, there was that. But, yeah, it's just interesting to compare and and... You know, oftentimes, usually the book, it seems like, is is more enjoyable sometimes. But then when you see these characters come to life and you like the actors, yeah, uh, it, it's a whole another experience. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I'm not sure where I was going with that, but. I'm not sure where I'm going with anything, so I'm glad <laughs> we're on the same okay. page. That's all right. No, <laughs> and we're just having fun here. Okay, so. <laughs> How does a writer know if prose is better for them creatively or the screenwriting format? Um, I think it's, I think they, it's just trial and error. Uh, I, I, I wrote a screenplay in 2019, right before COVID and, um, I was jazzed about it and I'm like, let's go, let's go. And, um, I wasn't ready to show it yet, but I knew that I had, I, cause I knew I had rewrites to do. And then now I'm writing the novel. So I read the characters are intriguing me so much. I'm like, I really need to get in their heads. And I really and and when I write, I handwrite. I I'm not a typer, so I have to handwrite everything, and that's um, and that's giving me so much joy right now because that's just like I'm finding out things about the theme and what I thought I was presenting, and it was just like, oh no, that's not the theme at all. So it's uh, yeah, it uh, if something's a screenplay or a book, it could be both. It's um. It, it could be just a novel and some novels would be, you know, really hard to adapt. I, I, but I, I think I would like to think in myself, if anyone asked me to adapt a novel that was unadaptable, I feel like I can find the thread to do it. Um, but that's probably because I get a little delusional and I want a problem solved. So, hmm. so you love these characters so much that you realized that 110 page whatever screenplay wasn't wasn't enough for you creatively you yeah um i think yeah i don't know if it wasn't enough i think there's i don't think the screenplay is there yet so that's part of it and i think there's a lot more to explore and for me the way to explore it is through prose and i'm just doing it that way and in the end, I mean, it might be a graphic novel. Who knows? Uh, I, it's almost like you don't want to you don't want to put it in a ball too quick. Let's just let the story go. Let's just, let's see where the story goes, 
And who you know? Who knows? It, it maybe it is just a book. Maybe it, maybe it never was meant to be on the screen at all, or maybe the book gets tossed away, and I learn a couple things and go back in the rewrite. Um, I don't think we should. I don't think we should hold on to the the medium so much that um, you know work through it and try to complete things. But we shouldn't. We I don't think we need to give the medium so much power. It's give the story the power. Was there a defining book of your teenage years? <laughs> so I really couldn't read books in my teenage years because uh, I grew up the Jehovah's Witness and I was reading more Bible stuff uh, and the, and only slid by in the books that were uh, that were um, assigned to us in school. So, and you know, they essentially were like, just try to read enough so you can get by and get a decent grade and get out. It was, it was very discouraged to read anything that wasn't published by the Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, when, I, so when, so what happened was a friend of mine, a friend of mine in the Jehovah's Witnesses was disfellowshipped. So he was shunned and then he killed himself. And so I went to the elders and I was looking for help. And cause I was, cause I'm like, wait, Gibby killed himself. And how can I not kill myself? Because, uh, you know, I do have suicide in my family that's not related to the Jehovah's Witnesses. So they were completely unhelpful. They didn't want me to grieve his suicide. Um, they just said, make sure you keep going out and preaching and stay. Uh, and that was not the answer for me. So what I did, and this was, I think I was 22 or 23. So, so I went to the library instead. And I went to the psychology section and I'm like, where do I get help? So I found Tony Robbins and I found Wayne Dyer. Oh yeah. And I'm like, and I, and I was like, oh, and I would just sit there in the stacks and read these. And it kind of gave me a little bit of perspective. And then it was next to poetry. And I started, and I just started opening poetry books. And I was, and I was just, and they were speaking to me. And then somehow the first novel I read was um, Giovanni's Room, James Baldwin. So I read that book, kind of didn't get it because it's a homosexual love affair, if I remember right. I haven't read it since then. But I got the, I got the heart of it. It meant something to me. And I was like, who do I read next? So James Baldwin was my number one. And then I read Henry Miller. And then I found out that there was this guy, Jack Kerouac, who was who wrote On the Road and it was, it was the beat generation. I'm like, what's a beat? And I remember skateboarding to the library before it closed because I had to get a copy of On the Road that weekend and read it. And I read that and I went, and, and these were touching me on emotional levels. It was, I was having a conversation with authors that had died, but they were, but they were, I was having a conversation that I never got to have in my life. And that that's what changed everything. And then I read a book called Hunger by Newt Hamsun, this Norwegian author. And that's when I went, I'm a writer. That that was the book where I just went, that's it, I'm a writer. Uh, and I'm going full in. And even if I can't eat and I have to die, I'm writing till the end. So. And when did you tell family, people in the church that you were a writer? Well, well, I was still married and I was married. So I ended up getting married uh, to a Jehovah's Witness and I was still married. I told her that I'm out and she begged me not to tell anyone and I didn't. Um, and that was very codependent of me, but I was also, you know, 
I was also unhealthy at the time as well. Uh, but I was writing at the time, and I, and I started a thing called Film Junkie. And, um, and I would go to film festivals. I knew all of a sudden I was a journalist in 1999. I was like, this is all you gotta do? So I was going to these, see all these movies before they were rated, because you can't watch rated R movies in the Jehovah's Witnesses. And then I was writing about all these movies, and then, by, then they would come out and be rated R, and they'd be like, how did Tony see that? And they're like, well, it wasn't rated yet. And they'd be like, oh, okay. Um, when I was kind of out of the, um, out of it. So I was actively like writing and working on my own stuff and it was starting to get seen around and people would get in touch uh, with my wife at the time and be like, Tony's kind of, he wrote something that didn't seem a little too Christian, you know, maybe you should talk to him about it. And then I would lean in harder and write a, you know, sex scene. <laughs> so, because I was being very contrarian at the time. And I think I needed, essentially I was getting my teenage angst out when I was 27, which is just totally embarrassing. You need to get it out in your teen years, but it was a little later for me. So then you moved to LA and you felt like that you could be your own person and, and that you didn't feel shame about writing anything? Oh, I feel shame about writing everything. Uh, no, I didn't, the LA move didn't happen for a long time. I stayed in San Francisco. I, I was writing for the San Francisco Chronicle. So I was covering uh, books and um, music for the Chronicle. And I wasn't planning on moving to Los Angeles. Um, and then I finished um, Jesus Jerk. And then I was shopping it around. I got an agent and then I got a publisher. And then so that the book came out and then the option thing started happening where things go to die. <laughs> so, so but, it, but it was beautiful. I got to work with a producer um, who runs Hunting Lane Films, Jamie Patrickoff, and we worked on uh, the pitch for the TV series. And, and I learned so much um, about like writing pitches, taking notes, and, and he was very gracious with me. And, uh, you know, and, and then it was just like, that kind of just fizzled out there. You know, there's like, meh, no, screw it. I, and I don't think it was him, I think it was the people that he had interested uh, in. And then, um, and, and then the book got to Eric Stoltz, and then that's when he uh, he said, "Hey, let's." Um, for, first off, I found out Eric Stoltz was reading my book, and I was just like, "Well, I could just die now. <laughs> We're done," you know. It's pretty and cool. And then, um, yeah, and then then he said, uh, "We need Tony to write the screenplay so we don't lose the voice." And I went, and I went, challenge taken. Um, so I. Uh, yeah, I worked on that uh, really hard and hours and hours on end. Um, and so I wasn't in, oh, so I wasn't in LA yet. I was I was in San Francisco and he was he's in New York. so we were doing a lot of back and forth that way. And then as it's, it went in, it got delayed and then shooting was supposed to start another time it got delayed, but I knew I had to be in LA for it. Um, and so I just, got down to LA when it was in pre-production and I sublet my apartment in San Francisco and I just would sublet around LA while it was in pre-production. And then uh, and some months later we, we were on set and on location. So that's how I came to LA. I was already very far out of the Jehovah's Witnesses. I was already divorced. I was, I, I'd already created a writing life in San Francisco. And I was, I knew it was time to leave San Francisco, but I was kind of thinking New York because I was writing for publications and going on that angle, but um, the nudge to LA uh, brought me here, which was, it turned out to be the right choice in the, 
Yeah. How does the book business differ to the film business? It's it. Well, what what I've noticed is in the book world, there's um, not a lot of people are there for all the for all the huge amounts of cash coming in. There, there there's kind of more of a a passion like, oh crap, we might have picked the wrong thing, but this is what we love. So when I'm working with like an editor, I'm working with an agent. There's a deep love. You know, the agent wants to make money, and the, you know these people. The, yeah, they do want to make money, but they're kind of there because it's uh, it's just what what they what they know and what they're good at. Uh, when we get to film, there's a there's a little bit more. Uh, you know, the film business is um, weird. I I. I I really don't connect with the film business that much at all. I'm not good at the film business. Um, and so it's, uh, I mean, I'm kind of not even good at pitching. <laughs> you know, I'm not good. There's a lot of things I'm really not good at on the film side of things, but, um, but I know, but I know that I know the I know my, the story is the only thing that really, that I really care about. And then the, maniacal passion to get it out there when I feel like I've got it right. So, and, and I've, you know, people, in the people in the film business, they're, they're nuts. <laughs> they're just absolutely nuts. Um, and it, and what I've learned is it's just hilarious how people are like, Oh yeah, no, that's, I, I'm indie, you know, we will never do studio work. And it's just like, Oh, we were studio. And it's just like, there are pieces of crap on every single layer. And sometimes those indie, sometimes those indie focused people are the ones you don't want to work with at all. It'd be much better to work at Paramount. And sometimes it's vice versa. There's um, the game is just funny. There's just uh, what I've learned is, um, you know, what, what I've learned in my, my small career so far is to, uh, is to just love who you work with. And, but in the film industry, you, that might not be an option and have a really good entertainment lawyer that spells everything out and you don't even have to talk to some people sometimes, even if you're working with them. It's just so. Well, that was going to be my next question is can you love film and love, you know, wanting to put something out there, but not love the business and not really want to be a part of the business? Does that, it seems like that can't work out. Well, I'd love to be a part of the business where the checks are big. That's my favorite part of the business. I would love to be a part of that. Um, hey, the business needs to be done, and I understand why the business needs to be done. I mean, to create a film is a monumental expense, and people are putting their money and going, okay, let's make profit. And um, so the stakes are very high. Um, and... It's, you know, I, nobody knows what's going to make it. What, you know, or like William Gold, was it William Goldman? Or it's just like, nobody knows anything, but they make good guesses. And there's a lot of people that make good guesses. Um, I, I, I do, I mean, I love the art of film. I, you know, I love the passion of someone who's in wardrobe and to talk to, to someone who does wardrobe. And, and it's just like, they are storytellers there. And, I've learned a lot coming into this where my, uh, you know, I've loved film before. I love it even more now that I've seen behind the curtain. So that, yeah, there's the business part, but, but most of the, most of the time, if you're really working on something, 
the business part's so secondary and you you try to get agents and entertainment lawyers to do all of that part of it and then go, okay, great, here's what I need to do and um, this is what I need to deliver. And I think a lot of that is communication too. I'm, I've, I think I've learned a lot over the years. Be very almost over-communicative so they know what to expect, so they know what I can bring and don't promise anything that I can't bring, but let them know that I'm gonna try to do that but that might be out of my realm, but let's just see what happens kind of thing, so. So then with the literary world, maybe New York, old money, sort of this this closed network, is that a fallacy? It's much more open now, it's... it's oh, I don't know, I've, oh. yeah, um, I just might be with the cool people. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know on the publishing end, I guess I know just a lot of writers, so uh, who, you know, are just lovely people, whether they're a bestseller every time they come out or they're on a, a you know, small print run. And I love both of their styles of writing equally and love them, you know, in their own ways as people. So I think maybe I know more the writing end and I get to kind of be aloof to the, to where the business is. I kind of don't, I don't care too much. And, you know, I'm dealing with publicists a lot because I cover writers and the publicists are great too, for the most part. You know, they're just passionate about the, the writing and they're, they want to get their, they want to get their authors out there. And um, there's publicists I've worked with for 20 years, you know, that, that uh, they, they know who to give me. They just go, you're going to love this guy. And I'm like, great. You're going to love this girl. And I'm like, great. I don't even need to see the book. Just, just, yeah, they're on the calendar. So um, the, the, the passion for it is there. I want to talk to writers, you know. It's like, I want to talk to writers, and that's the lovely thing of doing a podcast is uh, someone, you know, if I went, hey, I want to talk to you, just out ran random out of the blue, they'd be like, who? Who are you? You have a podcast, and you're like, I'd love to talk to that person for an hour and pick their brain. And it's just like, wait, you can just do it? It's just, it's good fun. And that's Drinks with Tony? Yeah. And you've been doing it how long? Next year will be 20 years, so I'm putting together the 20-year anniversary party. But I did have the hiatus for five years between 2013 and 2018. So, Why the hiatus? That's when Jesus Jerk went into development, and then I had to get to L.A. And I used to do drinks with Tony in studio in San Francisco, so that was a, that was a two-hour show in studio, and I didn't know how to do it not in studio. And then after all the film, after the film was released and that kind of... Um, that the kind of dust settled, then I went, maybe I should just do this as a podcast and have my field recording gear instead of worrying about being a, doing a two-hour show. So I just kind of switched up the format. The way you miss writing and the way you feel like you're a better person for writing and when you don't, it's kind of like with people that meditate, they're like, oh, if I don't meditate, I'm not fun to be around. Were you similar with not being able to do the podcast? Did you need? Did you miss that? Did you need to do that podcast? So well, uh, I, so after after Jesus Jerk came out, and after all the dust settled, I was walking up Hillhurst, totally depressed, uh, just gutted. I didn't know why, and I'm like, how do I get out of this depression? And I'm like, what's the last thing that made me happy? As I was like, you know, as I was working on other writing projects and stuff, but, and I went, drinks with Tony. And I think I think because there's no stakes in it for me. There's stakes in it because I want to do a good show. 
but there's no there's not the stakes that I'm putting into my writing and at the same time and I and I restarted it with thinking oh maybe I'll get 10 episodes in I wasn't planning on doing it that long I was just like oh I still got this and I got publicist contacts I'll just tell people I'm doing it again and then when I don't get a guest I'll just stop and um I just put episode 157 up because the guests haven't stopped coming and I have to say no to a lot of people so it's just like oh um but and I still enjoy it and the only reason I do it is because I really enjoy it it's you know the one in ten guests I go ugh, that that felt like a piece of crap but you know the nine out of ten I'm just like oh this is why I do this and there's like two out of ten where I'm like this is really why I do this this is this reminds me of why I'm in this game so Whereas with writing, if you don't write, explain to me how long before you suffer withdrawal. Um, it's, I think it's, um, I, th I think the thing, the thing is, is I need to have characters in my brain and I need characters that are coming together. Um, so I, I, I need to actively be working on someone. So I'm working on a character, Amber, right now. And... So in the <clears throat> during the day, I can have things that irritate me, but I have the problem solving of how will Amber get out of this situation? Who, what is Amber? What else does what else does she need? Um, what what is what does she want to say to the world? So it's it's maybe it's a way to avoid the 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 conflict happening around me, where I can kind of almost meditate on this character that I'm working on and this, you know, that I may, that this character I actually kind of don't like. But as I'm writing her, I'm writing her completely out of love and just building around her and, you know, she's, she's a, yeah, I mean, when, you know, this is, this is a, <laughs> this is a writer in process on a character, but this character does not make great choices and this character continues to make great choices and in the end she still doesn't make the great choice she's so there's um but working with her and kind of really getting in her head is just a lot of fun and just um and what swirls around her uh is i find interesting why do you love her if she makes these bad choices um i'm well i'm setting up a it's, there's another character that i'm working on that's gonna get the um it, that's going to be more of the protagonist and uh it, it's a story of three characters but there's this one character that is more pivotal than the others so the characters are around him need to really be three-dimensional and I, and i also want you know i love the ambiguity of in my head she's not making the right choices but as we get you know as we get to, as we move through the story maybe she is making the right choices it's it's uh you know it, it, well in the end she's doing the best she can with the information she has but as far as i'm concerned it's it, that character is someone that's not um that's not that hasn't reached a maturity or reached a certain level of understanding but has stayed in it and so i have empathy for that and that's uh so yeah so at driving here i'm I'm just like driving and I'm thinking of Amber and, and people are like oh who who's Amber is that your girlfriend I'm like no it's a it's just a word on a page <laughs> so. but you have a vision of what she looks like 
what her hopes are, what her fears are, what her triggers are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as I keep writing her, I find out more about her. Um, and that's that's the joy of that's the joy of prose writing for me because I can I can find out if I'm as I write and I write the scene now and I go oh that's why she's doing that you know I was I had uh, on this particular one in the in the in the screenplay she's she's looking in a mirror and reflecting on herself and that was like the only thing and as I wrote the thing out um, she's worried about aging. She's in her twenties and she's worried about aging, and um, and it and that and that kind of clicked, and I went, and it it create it opened her up and it opened the whole story up in a new way, where it's just like I'm not going to put in the screen you now if it if if the if the prose gets thrown away, and it stays in the screenplay. I'm not putting in the screenplay. She's worried about aging, but I know she's worried about aging when she looks in the mirror. She's a model or cocktail waitress or what is she? Makeup doing? artist. Oh, okay, all right. Yeah. Okay. Do you ever see her anywhere? Do you ever see like, oh, that was Amber? No, no, I didn't. No, I, I, I don't see her. I see her enough. I mean, when I, when I'm writing the script, you just I see her enough, and I don't want to cast her. Um, I, I like that to be very open, but I, I do have my thoughts on certain things. Um, but as far as like describing exactly who she is and what she looks like, there's there's just little composites here and there, and. Um, and, and I'll take out like pages from like uh, magazines and stuff and it's there, there's you know there's an idea but it's not that but it's there could be something that um, you know a certain a certain photograph is just like oh that's kind of an essence of what she could be um, and yeah it's um, I'm not one to really describe I, I, I don't care much about what they look like I care more about the insides I guess and then for the film, it's you know there's casting directors for that who can tell me way better who can they're much better at that that gig than I am. So, are most great stories an outsider story? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I feel like I'm an outsider, and I feel like almost everyone I know feels like an outsider at some point in their life, if not often, probably more than fifty percent of the time. So maybe that's why we can kind of gravitate toward outsider stories. Um, yeah, and it, you know, it's we look at a film like Mean Girls or something, and it's it's about people just trying to be together and fit in. It's we have this urge to we have this urge to be together and part of the tribe, and so uh, the, the the outsider story is fun to play with. But I don't think any of us want to be an outsider. But it's fun to watch The Outsider because we kind of can, we feel like we're outsiders. If that makes sense. It does. I'm trying to think of the movie I just watched from the, is it Pump Up the Volume, the Christian Slater? Oh, yeah, yeah. And so here he's this radio guy, and everybody kind of worships him because he just says whatever he wants. Yeah. And they can't believe what they're hearing. And then, you know, the, the faculty is just incensed by it. And then in real life, he's this awkward guy that, he wants he he wants to be part of the group, but then he's kind of turned off by that whole suburbia high school hierarchy thing, and um, it just had me thinking about that. Just sort of this guy that actually, when you listen to him, he spoke to everyone, but then for whatever reason, he was too scared at the at the high school to yeah try to navigate the social hierarchy. Yeah, and. Um, 
But but we we have these these hero stories mm -hmm. where are they always the outsider? I guess maybe that's what makes the, the hero's arc is that. I guess yeah. I guess in order for. I mean, for the most part, when you know we have our hero's journey, and I think it's a singular hero. Um, and I think it's because we can we can relate to the problems of one person for 90 minutes. Um, if you bring in too many people or you know the, the ensemble cast, there tends to be a veering towards the one person that's really pushing it all the way through. Um, so we, we have to have that. We also almost have to have that mirror. Who's my mirror here? Oh, it's Cameron Diaz. Okay, great. I'm with her on this journey. Um, and that's and I don't think that's real life in any way at all. But for, um, well, we're all our own heroes in our own journeys, but we're also a collective. But so it, I guess our protagonist is an outsider of sorts because the protagonist needs to be spun around. They need to be pushed back on their heels. And that's why we're interested. It's just like, oh, wait, they're, they're spun around. They're dizzy. How do they stop being dizzy? Okay, that's fun. Now, how do I turn the page or sit here uh, for another 10 minutes to find out what the next two scenes are because that was interesting. What peril is this character going to be in? So yeah, it would make sense that the characters would be outsiders. This, um, you know, during COVID, we, we have all these, uh, the, the movies I've watched have not been movies I would watch, you know, there are comfort movies. And The Wrong Missy came out, the David Spade movie um, that Adam Sandler uh, produced. And, um, and it's not a movie I'd go run to see, but I watched it and it's just, um, he, is, he is an outsider, he's, he's in his own tragedy. It's a comedy, but he's in the utter tragedy of thinking that he found the, the you know, it's, it's really formulaic and it's, you know, if, I, if I just told you two or three description, you'd be like, oh, so the act one is this, act two is this, act three is this, and it's like, yeah, it is. But it's fun to watch him get there. What movie protagonists do, do you feel the most um connection to <laughs> could be male or female <laughs> well so when i was young and this was uh I, there was this movie called johnny suede brad pitt starred in it that came out and tom DeChillo wrote it and i look at it now and it's absurd and it's hilarious but at the time i would i thought i was johnny suede i am it's it was Brad Pitt's first leading role, and um, and it, it's just about a guy who's trying to figure out love and wants to get a band together. <laughs> it's just <laughs> like I'm like that's me, um, and it's just kind of silly because uh, it's a um, he's really kind of a dopey character, and not you know I I don't know why I gravitated to him so much. I think I think it was because I was trying to figure out love and. Um, you know, was kind of always wanted to have, you know, getting a band together is like getting a group of friends together. It's just like, how do we, how do we, how do a bunch of guys, you know, um, come together and, uh, you know, not make love? Well, let's just get a band. <laughs> it's, it's, everything's kind of intimacy. So he was trying to find his intimacy and blowing it beyond belief. And um, so when I think of a character that uh, I gravitated to when I was, uh, when I was young, it was, it was Johnny Suede, and I had the, uh, yeah, it's uh, Tom DeCillo, um 
I got to interview him like 15 years ago and he's written books too. And I brought every single book. I'm like, please sign my books. Now he lives in LA. So uh, I, I still have to like, uh, yeah. Anyway, he's, he's uh, I'm a huge fan of his and I'm a huge fan of how honest he is about um, his career as a filmmaker and how really rough and tumble it was. And um, just the beauty of Johnny Swade and his other movie, Living in Oblivion, which came out after that. So. And sorry, you were still in the church at the time you mm -hmm. saw it? Okay. Yeah. Were you, and you didn't tell anyone that you saw the movie? I was very careful, yeah, because it was rated R. Oh. So I had to go to the video store. Actually, I think I bought the VHS. I bought the VHS, oh. and, that, and I, I watched that thing. That's probably the movie I've seen the most in my life. Um, and, and I could probably uh, give you every line of dialogue from here. The reason I watched it was because uh, one of my favorite singers is in it, Nick Cave. So that was what turned me on to it. And then all of a sudden I'm like, well, that character spoke to me. So. Uh, would you hide the movie somewhere? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hide the, hide the movies, hide the records. Um, yeah. Where would you hide them? Um, yeah, not to. I, I actually had my own apartment at that time. So, oh, okay. Uh, so it was easy enough. But when I was like still living at home, it was uh, records were behind the dresser and we would make mixtapes for our friends. And then we would hide the mixtapes but we would all trade the tapes and then we would keep the records at certain friends' houses, uh, move them back and forth. Wow, and it's just because they were rated R? That was for music and that's because they were punk rock and that was something oh. that would um, that right. no one would understand. Uh, um, uh, movies, I, no movies I wouldn't even bring into the house that were rated R, um, but I would try to, I would, I would go to the video store, and this was this was when I was married. I'd go to the video store, and then I would like look around to make sure no one from the congregation was around. And then I would like, you know, and then I'd pick up. Oh, look at this rated G movie. Well, this looks very, <laughs> this looks very good. Yeah, uh, I like this G movie. And can you put that in there too? Because I, because I want to know what Martin Scorsese's done. And then, um, yeah, and then I went to the library constantly, and. Um, was just checking out every movie that you know stuff like I'd never seen Apocalypse Now and it's just I'd never and I didn't know what a war movie was I thought war movie was just violence and terrible and it's just like oh no these are crafted films and so but I would have to watch them on my own and be very careful yeah how do you define story and how do you teach it to students and clients we tell stories all the time even as I'm talking to you, I'm telling stories. I'm bringing characters in. Um, we, we're we're made to tell stories. We're made to we're made to tell stories about what you know our aunt did. That oh my god, she's she's crazy. She's out of her mind. You know what she did. And so we're story building constantly. Just even even if we don't know it. And then that's when we go, okay, so how do we craft it? And then it's just like, let's, that's when I talk about character and plot. Let's talk about a character. Okay, what does this character do? Let's talk about plot. And then um, what I, I do this, I do a free writing workshop for the library once a month. And so it's one of my favorite things to do because I get nobody I know in there. It's just like all of a sudden I have all these eyeballs looking at me going, teach us how to write a story. <laughs> And, and sometimes they have a lot of experience and sometimes it's the first time they've ever even thought of being a writer. And um, so right away, I just talk about character and plot. And the, what drives me nuts about, the, there's monumental catalog of books out there, 
you know, 500 pages, how to create a plot and a screenplay, 500 pages, character work. I throw all those out. There's not, it, we, it, the, we can't be bogged down by this intellectual, this is how it is, and blank, 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 blank. It is good to read those books. I mean, I'm a fan of Joseph Campbell. I'm a fan of, um, you know, I, I'm a geek about storytelling. But as far as, as far as it's concerned, just start writing and just have a character and just give them a goal and then just get in the way of the goal and just see what happens. And then what I do is I do free writing. So I'll, I'll do a free writing exercise. So I'll just put them, I'll, I'll have them do a free write. And then they usually don't know that there's a second and third part. I'll throw in the plot twist for them. And, and then they're, and then they, they've, they create kind of full fledged stories within 30 minutes on the end. There's a beauty to that. It's, it's, uh, there's a beauty to um, having a time limit and then just going, you know what? You all wrote crap. Everything you wrote is problematic and awful. I can't wait till you bore me with your story because what you wrote is, you know, you, you, it took you 30 minutes. There's people that write for years to write a good short story. So let's, let's see what happens. And Usually they're all very interesting. They're, it's way more interesting than anyone would ever think. And um, so that's, that's kind of how I wanted, you know, I want people to just jump into it and write a story in 30 minutes and then kind of walk away and go, I can do it. And it's just like, yeah, you can, but you kind of got to do it every day and it's got to be a practice. Like anyone could, anyone could do yoga. They might, you know, but... You're not going to go do a handstand on the first day if you've never done yoga in your life. You got to come and practice every day. You got to, you know, teach your body. So when you're writing, you got to teach your mind. Teach your mind that you're coming to the page. You're coming to the page. Then your mind starts to go, oh, crap, we're coming to the page. I better come up with something. So, yeah. Can you give me an example of, let's suppose, what a free writing sort of uh, assignment the, in five minutes, Karen, I need you to, and, and you, you would have me write something out what would it be so uh, what what i so here's an assignment that i give uh, that i give is i asked I, I would say karen what what would be the greatest job in the world that you could ever have and think of anything anything at all what would you like to do for eight hours a day and then i would hear what you would like to do for eight hours a day and i'd be like great on this scenario you're going to get 50 million dollars a year to have this job but you only have one more, you've been through eight interviews. They want you, you have one more interview. So you need to, um, you need to drive to the interview. But when you, as you're driving to the interview, you're gonna get in a car accident and someone's gonna cut you off. And so, right, and I would tell you to write that. Write that scene, you got the last interview for the greatest job in the world, for all the money you could ever want, but this car cut you off. And that would be the beginning of that writing exercise. And then the plot twist, uh, yeah, everyone write it out. And usually it's just like, that, you know, that just, I'm gonna kill and, uh, you know, and, the, and it's just great. They like really get into it because they find something they're passionate about the character. Right? It's, we've created the character, the character has a passion and the character has a goal. And then after that, that limit, I go, okay, great. Now, you're, now your character's at the interview 
and they find out that the person they got in the car accident with is the person that's interviewing them. Now, how does that play out? And that's when it's just like, you know, because they weren't thinking of that. They're, and so then, they, then they're like, oh, how do, we, how do we resolve this huge problem now? Usually that has been a very contentious scene is now the person that they need. So it's a lot of fun. And then after that, um, my big question is, the, the last sentence is, do they get the job or do they not get the job? And usually it's 50-50. Um, so usually people find a way around it. People, it's so that would be that. That would be one of the the one of the one of the lessons I use a lot to get someone to write, and that would be about thirty minutes. So I'd have them write about ten minutes, just really dive into the anger of the scene, ten minutes of resolution, and then uh, five minutes after that. So. Excellent. That sounds fun. Yeah, I know. Sometimes the beauty of being in a writing class is just hearing the other people. It's not, it's not so much getting critique on your own. And there, yeah, and in that situation, there's no critique at all because oh. it's, just re it's just reading it. Oh, I see. Okay. So, and, and for the most part, everyone is laughing at every story because they're so good. And, it's, and people get really, like I've had people who are like, that is the first time I have ever read anything I've written in front of everybody. It happens more than not. And, um, and I'm like, were you expecting that reaction? They're like, no. And I'm like, you, you got story to tell, so make a decision. You're going to join us in hell? <laughs> what is it? Laugh with the sinners or cry with the saints? Um, Virginia, <laughs> come on. You know, um, no, I don't I know why it. I'm singing. I shouldn't be singing. Why are you allowing me to do this? No, no. You, we... <laughs> but at Billy Joel. I would join in if I yeah. knew it. I got to watch Mystic Pizza. I got to listen to Billy, Billy Joel. <laughs> if we were to have a Tony DeShane five-part writing process to a story, what would that be? I don't know why I'm drawing a blank. A pen, paper. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, pen, paper, good cup of coffee or, or whatever, or whatever drink, mm -hmm. um, and uh, a, a desk or even a chair just somewhere. And, um, you know, whether you're disturbed or not disturbed, I think something that happened with COVID is... Uh, People said, oh, it must be great for you because you can write now like you want. I'm like, no, 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 you don't get it. I have to be irritated to write. People are not, I need to be in a cafe where people are talking loud on their cell phones. People are being awful. And I have to tune that out. And then I have to write, I have to kind of write in, uh, in situations where it's kind of antagonistic, where things are coming at me. And that's when I do my best writing. When I'm at peace, I don't do great writing. Yeah. Yeah. No, the certain coffee shops are great um, for conflict and for. Oh, and it has to be boring. People are like, oh, did you have intelligentsia? I'm like, oh, no, I'm at Coffee Bean. <laughs> and they're just like, why would you go there? And I'm like, because it's boring and corporate. Oh, so you don't want too much, too much happening. I don't want it to be cool. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't want it to be hip. Okay. So no filtered water and, you know. <laughs> just... Yeah, you... Arabica beans or what? You, you've got to have more. Just I mean, I, I coffee bean has great coffee. So yeah, um, yeah, you just want something where it's not there's not hipsters coming in all the time. Well, no, it's it, it, I just I don't want the whole place to be a fashion show. Oh, I, I, okay. Yeah, you know. Okay. I, 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 but it, a group, you know, hipsters or not. I mean, people look at me. People look at me and sometimes go, "Oh, great, there's a hipster here." I get it. <laughs> so. 
Well, sometimes what's greater are old diners. I know they're, they're yeah. hard to find. Where there's someone that, I'll be right with you. And it's like they're going to serve it from one of those ancient coffee oh, pots. Yeah, yeah. And that's great. Because there's yeah. so many characters in a place like that. And it's real quiet. And there's just everyone, you know, like each person has a fascinating story, like what yeah. they're doing. And yeah. But there's not that many places like that anymore. Yeah. They've been replaced. What writing failure has taught you the most? It's funny. I, I my the first novel I wrote was terrible, uh, but I think you have to write it to learn how to write a novel. It's like you have to write a screenplay to learn how to write a screenplay. Um, so you just have to fail. Uh, at the same time, you kind of gotta as you come to your first novel, you know, you have to think, oh, this is gonna be published. This is gonna be great. Oh, everyone's gonna love it. I'm a novelist. <laughs> just like. Um, and then you're just like, you know, a year or two in and you're like, yeah, I can't do anything with this. <laughs> I got nothing. But you, you've put in the time and you kind of get the idea of what needs to be done in order to, you know, to write a, to write a novel. So. Did you think it was bad or did other people say it? Uh, no, I thought it was bad and I, it was bad. It was, it was all over the place. Um, yeah, I was, well, so. What was it about? Uh, it was, uh, it was uh, about a marriage that was breaking up. And, uh, yeah, I, it's funny because it was like, nine, I, would, I wrote it like nine years before my marriage broke up. So maybe I was for just foretelling my future. Oh. But, uh, yeah, it's, you know, I was young and precious. I think, uh, I think if I'm precious with my work, that's when there's a problem. I can't be precious. Um, Do you think you cared about the novel too much? I no, I think I cared about the 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 um, label of me as a novelist too much. I think I was a little too hyped on that. Um, there's there's a beauty to there's a beauty to um, what's interesting is once like once I got published, and then your book comes out. There's a whole oh is that all there is? And that's you know that Peggy Lee song <laughs> is that all there is to book publishing? Except it's different words, but. Um, but it, that's, that's the greatest club to be in because then you talk to other writers and you're just like, oh, hey, yeah, yeah how's your book? Uh, you know, when it's out. And, it, and that's, that's usually the thing. It's, it's, um, they, could be, or they could be excited it's on the bestseller list, but they got 12 interviews to do that day. And it's like, so there's still that, oh, okay, I got to get, you know, I... I got to get in this mindset of actually caring about a book that I finished a year ago. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's bougie problems, I guess. Do you think people feel the same once their film comes out or that's different? Um, the, uh, when, when, uh, Jesus jerk came out, um, so, well, I got to see the rough cut. And then when I when then when I saw it at the first film festival it was at, <clears throat> I didn't I didn't know what the final cut was going to be. So when I so when I was there, uh, it was fun to watch. But then I was realizing that I was I was I was gauging the audience. I was I was listening to the audience more than I was watching the movie, um, because I wanted to make sure the jokes were landing, and I wanted to make sure that when there was supposed to be silence, there was silence. 
And um, so that's how that worked. And then I saw it one more time at another festival. And, uh, and I did the same thing. <clears throat> and I was just like, all right, what's, what, jokes, what jokes are landing? What's working? What's not working? And it was kind of consistent. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, I'm just a screenwriter. I'm not the director, but when he, you know, he was there too. And then, uh, and then after that, I, uh, there was another screening and I just stayed for the first act. I was waiting for one punchline uh, to see if the audience got it. And then they all got it. And then I left and uh, came back later to do Q&A. Um, I don't know if I've ever seen it again in its entirety. And it's, uh, it's a weird relationship because I, you know, I see the film and I see where I go, oh, I was right off camera to the left. Oh, that's the day that, you know, that associate producer got in a fight with the unit production manager. Oh, you know, that's the, that's the day that I was hiding behind the truck out of, to make sure I was out of frame, but I can see that it's, so uh, my relationship to it is, it's, um, it's, it's, it's almost incestuous. It's almost too much to see. Um, and it's, uh, you know, very happy with it, but it's, uh, it's a little disconcerting, I guess. So again, and I got, and I got to see it in production. So seeing it in production is a very different experience and a very lovely experience. I think that was my favorite part of the experience is to see the different takes and the different choices the actors are making. And, you know, I'm looking at Eric and going, oh my God, they're making me look good. And he'd be like, they're making both of us look good. And I'd be like, oh, you know, so, yeah. If the audience hadn't laughed at that one punchline, what would have happened? <laughs> I probably would have been, we totally failed. Utter failure. Yeah. Um, those, yeah, I had definite punchlines in mind. And a lot of them, our lead actor, Sasha, had to uh, deliver. And, um, and he did great. And, uh, yeah, it was, you know, it, it worked. <laughs> so. Sure. But sometimes, you know, audiences don't. You know, we've all been in a film where we're the only ones laughing. And we're like, why, are, why am I the only one that's laughing here? Yeah. Yeah, that's on that example. I mean, I, and, and, but it's, at the same time, that movie was everything to me because that movie was about me. That movie was my life. Um, and that book was my life. So it was, the, you know, it was, uh, I wasn't sure if I should write it as a memoir. I mean, I was writing it as a novel to test it out as a novel. And I wasn't sure if I should pull out some of the fictitious things to make it a memoir when it was still in book form. But it read better as a novel to me. And it read better with more, uh, more leniency into facts of, the world up now. I I was a journal. I was a journal. I took a journalistic approach to the world of the Jehovah's Witnesses. So I made sure everything was absolutely factual to the to the nth degree across the board. So I, I actually had to do a lot of research on that. But that movie was that movie was me growing. That movie was all me. And so that movie was the most. That will be the most important movie, probably of my career because that's the story I needed to tell, and I needed to tell it that way, and not in the woe is me, oh my God, I grew up in a restrictive religion. No, I don't want, I didn't want that. I wanted the levity of, you know, the, of the okay and why people are there, and 
I wanted I wanted more. I didn't want a definitive answer. And um, to a lot of to a lot of uh, you know, there's ex Jehovah's Witnesses out there who do not like the movie because I did because I portrayed the Jehovah's Witnesses. I don't say anything bad about the Jehovah's Witnesses, and I'm like, that's on purpose because this is a just a character study, and it's essentially me. So, how does that character differ from Johnny Swade? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the fictional character I should have clung on to. Um, so uh, the, the character's name's Gabe, and uh, he's 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 just earnest. He's trying to just find his truth, and he's trying to live in it, and he's trying to stay a Jehovah's Witness. Um, and that's kind of what I did. I was trying to find my way to stay in, because uh, I believed it through my soul. So, but I also wanted to feel okay around people who weren't Jehovah's Witnesses. And I also just wanted love. Um, so a lot of that is just the yearning for, um, for someone to be in love with. And, you know, me as a, you know, I know the backstory of me because when I was six years old, I was engaged to Pamela because uh, I asked her to marry me and she said yes. You know, I just, I was very, I was very romantic um, and just had this yearning for family. And that's how I saw my way out of feeling bad of, it's like, oh, when I have a wife, then I'll feel better as a Jehovah's Witness. And so, uh, you know, the Jesus Jerk doesn't go that far into it. Jesus Jerk is kind of 10 years of my life smashed into a six months. So, But Johnny Swade, he, forgive me, I'm gonna, now I'm going to go watch the movie because now you have me intrigued. I want to see, and, you know, who doesn't want to see a Brad Pitt movie? So what would, um, what about that character? Do you wish could have been you? Um, I don't know if I wish he could have been me. I think I just related to him because he's kind of dumb, but he's <laughs> earnest. So there's just like, he's making mistakes left and right. And the, you know, not that time in my life, it was pretty tumultuous because that was around the same time that my friend had died. And I was, um, I think I was just looking for something. And I think, the character like Johnny Swade was trying to just fit into something. And he just, he just wanted, he really just wanted a girlfriend. And he was, he just, and he wasn't mature enough to understand when the right girl was right in front of him that it was right. And, uh, and it just, it, yeah, so that all kind of made sense to me. What mistakes do writers make when writing characters? I don't know if they make mistakes writing characters. Um, well, maybe they do. Um, it's just find ways to make them three-dimensional. Um, and there's always ways. And I think that's when, in the end, your character just needs, we need to know what the character's goal is and then just make it hard for them. That's, that's about it. Um, so for the most part, it's, uh, yeah, it's, I, I think I think I do find some people are you know that then this is when it comes to, oh no this is based on a true story and no this is a real person and it's just like yeah, okay but get back to the get back to the page stop doing the verbatim on you know but I, I also think that's a technique that technique that's a very a great word for it it's a way for people to avoid actually writing it's a way for them to avoid actually sinking into the conflict of the possibilities of that character. So they can just say, oh no, this really happened. And it's just like, you just don't want to go there. That's okay. Don't be a writer. 
it's not a it's it's not a hugely paying gig unless it is sometimes it's it's mostly sad you know it's it only looks pretty in movies so why wouldn't what where would they not want to go <clears throat> i i mean i find this i find this a lot and i find this in the majority of you know maybe 70 percent of the students that take my classes they they don't want to they it's like when we were talking about the um the evilness and the darkness I, I don't think they want to go into the darkness of their characters because they're too scared to show the darkness of themselves and that's when we're gonna completely that's that's just when the 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 the, the cat the sandcastle of the story you're creating just won't work it's um you, you need to know the imperfections that's that's the it's the fun part, you know. Right. So they make this character too perfect, or or it's too flat. Yeah, too flat, and just it doesn't. Yeah, it's just it. It's reading like they're avoiding, and usually I'll ask them what they're avoiding, and oh no, no, this really happened, and and there's people, there's a lot of students who just don't want notes. And you just kind of find them and go, all right, well, you're not getting notes then. It's just like, oh, you know, my, my standard is, um, oh, well, thanks for sending this in. And, you know, just sprinkle more conflict. <laughs> if, if a student's getting that note from me, that means that I realize they're not taking any notes and they just want a participation grade. So so if I, let's suppose I turn something in and, and you, you give me a first pass of, first round of notes and then you see that I don't integrate or I don't change anything. Does that mean I'm not receptive? No, it's um, it usually uh, the you know I don't mind I don't mind if a student's confused. I don't mind if a student is is even offended. I'm like, whoa, wait a second. But the the then the, the conversation. Let's have the conversation. And um, and it doesn't mean that they need to become take every note and become great. You know, in the next scenes. But but you can start to tell. You know, after a few workshops where you're just like, it just, it just happens. The, the practice is happening. It's just like, oh, you're hitting it. You're hitting it. You're hitting that conflict. You're, you're, you're hitting this. I'm seeing what you're doing here and here and here. Um, you, you can just, you could tell when someone's avoiding truth almost and when someone just, uh, and, that, and that's, that's the one thing that I really kind of preach to every writing class that I teach is, Write your truth. I can give you an outline with 90, I can give you 90 story beats with the character, with the all the plot and everything. I can give it to every one of you and tell you to go write it. And you're all going to come back with completely different um, screenplays because you're going to come with exactly who you are, how you grew up, your tragedies, your victories, you know, it, you, you have the fingerprint and that's the beauty of being a writer. It's like people get so stuck on ideas. Oh, oh, that's a good idea. It's like it doesn't the idea doesn't matter. It's your fingerprint on how the story, how you're telling the story, because every story has been told. You know, they may pretend like, oh, we got this new thing that we did it like this. And it's just like, all right. But in the end, it's still a heist movie or in the end, it's still a love story uh, that you know you found a little different angle on but the core of it the core that we care about is still in there so that then that will that'll never go away and that's when I 
I even say, hey, if you're lucky enough to get on an Adam Sandler movie, and you know, Adam Sandler writes goofy movies, but if you're lucky enough to get a project on that, put your truth in there. Go ahead and be goofy, but put an element of your truth in there and that will make you stand above and they'll be like, I didn't, and when they read it, they'll be like, you know what? I don't know why I like this, but I like it. And that's when we're putting our own truth into the work and we don't have to totally spell it out. But that's when people go, I connect to this and I don't know exactly why or how. But usually that means the writer, the writer has brought in just utter truth and honesty in storytelling. Do you find people are sometimes scared because you're so honest? It, it intimidates them because then that means they have to meet you at that level? <laughs> you probably, I should probably uh, be less intimidating. Um, well, no, not intentionally, but but I mean, this is who you are, and you want to. Yeah, story. and I don't expect. I mean, I I don't expect everyone to have to you know deal with uh, the, my demons the way I deal with them. Um, yeah, there's it's um, you know I be I I can tell when there's uh, avoidance in a sci-fi. You know, it's, it's <laughs> the it's, alien isn't looking at themselves. I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The alien looks at himself in the mirror and says, "I'm gorgeous and green." <laughs> yeah, um, there's, there's just, there's, it's just interesting because I think, and I didn't even realize this, but I've read so much work that I can really tell fast um, if, if they, uh, if they're into it. And if they and if they had a stake in writing it, there's this with and I don't know exactly what it is and I don't know how to explain it, but I could read five pages of something and realize if um, if they're invested and this is important or if this is an exercise and they're trying to and they're just trying to sell something, which could just be selling the teacher for a good grade or yeah yeah yeah, yeah. okay. Or even scripts that are given to me, going, "Hey, can you, you know, can you do a read through on this and give and give me uh, some pages of coverage?" And I'm like, "Yeah." And I'll be like, "Sometimes I've I've given back scripts after ten pages, and I'll be like, you didn't do the work yet.'" Um, so and it's just you know, and then there, uh, I there's something I have with um, with writing is I I kind of can't I have a problem sugarcoating it sometimes but 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 storytelling is my religion it's so it's nothing i will ever if there are gods of storytelling i'm never going to um, go against the gods of storytelling so um, i hate it when someone asks me oh did you like my book and i'm just like you know or it's, it, no i i would never ask that of anybody i don't even expect anyone to read anything i you know but if someone says that um I kind of have to either tell them the truth or avoid it in some way. And, and sometimes I might, might say, I would, you know, it was great to see you on that publisher. Or I really like that you got to work with that editor. And all they hear is great and like. They don't hear that I didn't say anything about the book. But I have to kind of, I can't say a book's great or a screenplay's great. If I feel in my bones, it's not. And I might be a jerk because of that. I don't know. Well, also, too, sometimes if you're going on a junket or press junket, you don't always have time to do. I mean, you sometimes get this stuff last minute, mm -hmm. so you don't always have time to read something or even get a screener. But, but yeah. you know, I mean, sometimes it's not just the work. It's also the person that did the work, and that's fascinating, too. 
Oh, exactly. Yeah. Oh, I totally agree. I agree beyond belief. There's, I mean, that that the person behind the work intrigues me. I think I'm talking about my friends when my friends come up to me and will ask that, <clears throat> and that throws me off. But like when I interview, like every once every like 15 to 20 people will ask, and um, that's uh, I kind of have to I, I have to re-steer I have to re-steer it because I because when I do interviews, I'm there to have the conversation with the person. I'm not there to uh, if we discuss storytelling, great. If you know, but I'd rather um, I'd rather not go into the details of the character of the book because that's for other. You know, that's for their other shows, I guess. Wow. Yeah. Or the question I love, how was it to work with so-and-so? There was such a big name. You know, is, that's like one of the, I hear these journalists will ask that in junkets and different things. And sometimes it's like, well, you're in a sense insulting the person. But hey, that's just me. My, my thing is, <laughs> I, I always ask, were they, not, were, they, were they nice to work with? <laughs> okay. Um, and it's really fun to hear because, and then, you know, I, I was, uh, yeah, I was on a, a set and right before COVID and someone was telling me about one of my favorite stars and I was like, how, how was he to work with? Um, and uh, they were like, he was nice above the line, but below the line, he was not a good person to people. And I was like, hmm. oh, that's, that's uh, you know, I don't want to hear that. Yeah, and plus you don't know what the person's going through, but I, I get it, I guess, if you hear enough stories. But sometimes you don't, you know, there's a few people that I've heard were difficult, and then I've seen someone come up and insist on a photo and different things in a really rude way, and oh, the person we, handled oh, exactly. it really well. And yeah. I was like, wow, they, they actually, you know, so you sometimes you just never know. You need to know the audience that yeah, you're, that's yeah. telling you that. If, if it's someone that's been working in film for 20 years and they're working on film after film after TV show after TV show, I'll take, I'll take notice when they, you know, but everyone knows everyone has a bad day. And sure, sure. I assume yeah. everyone has a bad day. So I never, yeah. yeah, if someone was like, oh, I met someone on the street and he was a jerk, I just kind of look at him and go, I, yeah, I don't care. I was watching an old interview with Jerry Seinfeld. I think it was with Charlie Rose. And he said something to the effect of he knew when it was right to eventually leave the show and, and to stop being a part of it. And he said, if I leave now, meaning stop the show, the audience will have this thing where they will never have to say it was good. And then it started to run out of gas. How, how does a writer know for their project or their scene even that, okay, I think I should stop now, because if I keep going, then they're gonna be like, yeah, th this, this kind of ran out of gas for me. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I mean, I've, I, I call it keeping everyone in the room as long as possible. Uh, and, I, and, and, I, and just because we're always trying to avoid conflict as humans, it's hard to, sometimes it's even harder to keep our characters in scene when the conflict is just rocking. Um, and let it let it play out, and then, so I think I think it's more important to let it play out, and then get them out to the next scene of okay that happened, and since that happened, now this is going to happen, and how are they going to get out of that situation? Um, so yeah, I that I feel like that's that's for scene work. But if you know, if I was Seinfeld, I would have taken the money and said, "What five million an episode? Let's go ten more seasons." Um, you know, but I'm not. But he's a stand-up comedian. He's not a. He's not a. You know, at heart. So like, kind of like like I, I get that. I'm a novelist at heart. So 
I'm not gonna I'm not gonna kill the novelist in me to make a TV show work. Uh, he's not gonna kill the comedian in him to make a next season, I guess. Sure, but in the reverse, you you had a screenplay that you were working on during this lockdown, and you wanted to extend it and do it in novel form. Mm -hmm. So there's been a reverse too, where you realized it sounds like you weren't done telling the story, and you wanted to tell more. Yeah, I don't know if it. Yeah, I. It just it doesn't feel finished, and I think it, it's it was just it's it's weird, but it was like speaking to me too much. It just kept speaking to me and I just, I kept seeing it. So um, this is how it's showing itself to me, I guess, um, which is uh, very, you know, I, I really don't work in the most efficient means. I should have rewritten the screenplay and started pushing it around and trying to, you know, make it happen. But um, that, you know, it's, I don't know why I feel like I had to re, I have to kind of re-enter it. Um, maybe because I, the, I was doing it as, uh, I thought, oh yeah, this would be a fun story. And it started as a fun story. Then it meant something to me. And I guess when it meant, when it means something to me, that's when it kind of like, oh, this actually, I do need to tell this. This is, this is something that, this is something that's personal to me that I need to tell. And that's when, um, that's when I feel like um, I'm only part of the process and I have to, I have to do justice to this thing. Um, I, I have to step up and be the very best I can be to what needs to be told with these characters. And so, what um what you know i'll in 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 heavy rewrites i'll really know what needs to stay and what needs to go but i i you know i i do know the story and i knew i know where everything goes i just this is when i'm just just for some odd reason i'm sinking deeper and deeper and it who knows maybe it's maybe it's just a book and never becomes a screenplay and that just everyone laughs at me to the end and they say well you're in development and i go i know what that means I'm going to, it's going nowhere. So, Development hell, that's yeah. what it means? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the definition of that? Oh, that's, uh, well, the, the uh, oh, your, your book's option. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Who's interested? Antonio Banderas, he's interested? Oh, my God. And it's just like, you know, like four, four, four there was a, four people who called each other, and then Antonio Banderas said, Oh, interesting. And then interesting <laughs> became like, he's interested. And then he's interested became like, he's clearing his schedule. And he's clearing his schedule became like, um, he wants to talk to you, but not yet. <laughs> so Kind of like a waiting for Guffman type of a thing. Where, <laughs> yeah, totally. Okay, right, right. Yeah, yeah. And then it's, it becomes a game of telephone, but it's... You just, it's I, you just don't believe anything. You just you just smile and say, thank you, yes. And then sure. it's, it's a miracle anything gets made. So, If someone's in that situation, what's your advice to them? In the situation of getting optioned, yeah. just enjoy it. I mean, it's it's actually a it's actually a nice ego boost to have. You know, maybe someone talked about you. It's like it's a nice ego in a boost. good way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe it's it's an ego boost. Like, oh, maybe someone read your book. It's just like, oh, that's sweet. I don't. It's not even a relative. That's nice. So, it's um, yeah. Just I just. 
you know, there, there's development hell, but there's also just that kind of a gratitude of, well, some people seem to care a little bit. And, you know, if it goes further, great. And if it doesn't, be working on someone, something else. That's, um, that's a story you need to tell. So, Yeah, that's what I was wondering. So especially for someone that maybe is outside of the industry, they're in another state or country, and their work is being optioned, so they're not waiting by the phone like a, like someone waiting for their date to call, who, who you know like a you know on a Saturday night. Oh, Tommy's supposed to call and Tommy doesn't call. So, what else should you be doing? You should be writing something new. Writing something new, being with being with your people and your writers and your writer friends, who can keep you in check. You know, it's uh, yeah. I, I've done everything wrong. It's uh, I went to my 20-year high school reunion, and I, um, I that's before Jesus Jerk was. Uh, that's right when I finished my final draft of Jesus Jerk, before I started submitting to agents. And at the reunion, I was like, "I'm a novelist! I'm a novelist!" <laughs> Just like, and I it was I was the epitome of the stupid guy because I wasn't. I, I wrote a novel, but no one may ever see it in the light of day. Fortunately, I finally found an agent and a publisher, but it was sheer ignorance on my part to say I'm a novelist before I have a book published, before I have an agent, uh, just because I have a draft done. And it could have been the, oh, remember remember that guy Tony we went to high school with who ran around the, the, uh, the, the you know, everyone telling you, everyone who's a novelist. I saw him scooping ice cream the other day, you know, it's, and uh, not that there's anything wrong with that, because probably most novelists need to do, published novelists need to do that anyway. But um, I've just learned to, uh, to 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 be a little more realistic with myself, uh, and also like kind of, I guess I guess I had a lot of joy at the time, and, and plus with that scenario, being able to write a novel after coming out of the Jehovah's Witnesses and doing something that was so utterly not not frowned not, not just frowned upon to to be creative and that's that was my whole kind of life was just crushing my creativity um so to be able to it was almost like i i come out and go i'm a creative person so yeah I'm t i was johnny suede i was that was i was kind of the buffoon um and i'm i'm gonna write a book on one of these days I'll write a book or an article on everything I've done wrong in publishing and the film industry so you don't have to. <laughs> it's just, it, it, it'll be probably the largest book I've written. But you went to that, that high school reunion feeling good and you left feeling good? Yeah. No one tried to burst your bubble? No, no. That's good. And, uh, well, and, I, and I also found out that they all knew I was a Jehovah's Witness. I was trying to hide it at school. You know, I'd be like, I, uh, I would... Uh, I would wear suits to school, you know, when like I found out that the, yeah, I found the, the specials record, the first specials record, and they were mod and they all wore suits. And I'm like, I just got to look like that. So if I'm looking like that at school and then I'm walking around with my Bibles and watchtowers on Saturdays, maybe they'll just think I'm just walking around. So I didn't, I thought I was kind of fooling everyone at school. Um, but it turned out they were like, oh no, we knew you're a Jehovah's Witness, but we always thought you were cool. And I was like, hmm. there's a lot of revelations to me that night. Interesting. And do you still keep in touch with any of those people? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. 
Okay. And so now they see that not only did you publish your book, but then you also made the film. Maybe. Uh, they probably don't even care, right? They get to see that they're, you know, I'll, I'll, they, I get photos of their grandkids. Uh, oh, nice. So, you know, or I'll find out, uh, you know, one, one is a doctor and he talked to me about vaccination stuff and what he's, you know, going on there. And it's just like, yeah, it, in the end, um, they might not be readers and they might not be viewers. And that's, that, that's the beauty of it. It doesn't matter. I, I always come into it now going, you know, I, now I'm just like, I assume no one's read anything or seen anything I've ever done. And if they have, then I'm pleasantly surprised and I say thank you. That's, uh, it's, people will apologize. Oh my God, I haven't watched your film yet. And I'm like, you don't have to. Don't worry about it. There's other things in life going on, you know. There's so, and it's on IMDb. You can you can watch it. Uh, it's like I, on Amazon IMDb. They have a yeah yeah they, yeah. It's on Amazon. It's on Prime and um, yeah. I don't know. I haven't. I I think it's on. Someone said it was on YouTube for free. So I oh, guess the okay. distributor put it on there for free. Which I have no. I have no. Uh, what do you call it? I have no authority on that on that end of it. I just so yeah, it's out there. People can watch it. Sure. Yeah, and there's the DVD too. I I I have the DVD. I haven't even opened the wrapper yet. <laughs> it's just like oh okay. It's uh, yeah. It's like the bottle of champagne. You just want to put. You don't want to. You want to open it to. Uh, I don't even know where it's at in my house. I was uh, when uh, when the Giants went to the World Series in Tim in two thousand ten and Tim Lincecum got like three Cy Young awards. And they asked him where he put them, and he said he thinks they're in the. They, he thinks that they're in his car, and I thought that was just so like dumb at the time. And then now it's like, oh no, I get that. Yeah, it's because it's about the work. It's not about the. It's not about the end. It's about the. It's about the middle. Would you say filmmakers today are more concerned with forcing a message than telling a good story? I see it. Yeah, I see it a lot. Um, and I, I think, I think people are concerned about how they're portrayed instead of the, what the story's talking about, and um, which is the you know people do what they need to do. That's not how I work. Um, I have no problem eating crow if I have to. Uh, as long as I'm telling the story as, um, as truthfully and from the heart as possible, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I see it a lot where people are people are trying to steer their stories in a marketing way. It's like, oh, this is fresh, and they're like, well, I'm writing fresh, and it's just never ever do that because it just it reeks of um, inauthenticity. But you know what? There's 80% inauthentic in, in films out there that are making a ton of money. So I, I'm not right on that. Um, it's, it's like very successful careers are being made. Uh, it's just not how I do it. So it's, uh, it's, it's not how I approach it and it's not how I want to consume it. I don't want, um, I, I, ne I, I preached door to door knocking on doors with the word of Jehovah for 20 years of my life. Um, the last thing I ever want to do is preach. Even if I believe in something, 
I don't want my belief system to, um, to find its way into the story and push it on the viewer. I always want the viewer or the reader to have their own questions and come up with and go, oh, really, that's interesting. I'm not sure if that uh, blank, I'm not sure if blank. I don't, I don't want them to know. The, the most beautiful compliment I got when Confessions of a Teenage Jesus Jerk came out, the film was, um, they, people thought I was still the Jehovah's Witness. And I was just like, yeah, I did it right. Because, uh, yeah, I, I do not believe in that belief system at all. It, it's very corrupt and it's, it's not good. Um, but when I'm telling the story, my message can't be in there. I could, tell, I could tell the world of, but I love it that people aren't sure if I'm still affiliated with the religion or not. That's the greatest compliment. And I feel like that should be, I would love that to be across the board where someone, I don't wanna know their political affiliation. I don't wanna know, I don't want the film or the story to tell me where they are. I want, I want them to explore the human condition because that's what we all got. So. You said something to the effect of 80% of movies nowadays do seem to fall into a category of a message. They're doing quite well. Who do you think the audience is of those films? <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it's interesting because I don't, I don't think the audience... This is why Hollywood is a weird business because I don't think the audience is too critical of certain things because uh, the general audience is there just to be entertained. What are we doing on Saturday night, honey? We're going to the cinema, Cineplex. Well, who's, what's there? I don't know, but that cute guy in that film's in this film. Well, great, let's go. And they go and then they enjoy it and then they go home. They're, they're, and their enjoyment of it is great. Well, great, it's, that's, that's what it's for. What, what a, um, even if it has a message, what a great gift that those filmmakers gave to those people who got to go on a date and then got to go home and cuddle and just you know come together because they saw a movie that I wouldn't necessarily care to see. So the, the viewership is just so vast that I, you know, I, I don't want them to make a judgment on those people. Um, I just, I'm just, uh, you know, I, and those people do not want to see my movie. I mean, and they've been vocal about it on the internet. <laughs> so it's just like, you know, I turned that off after five minutes cause what this, this, and this. And I'm like, you know, yeah, it's not for you. That's fine. I, cause I don't write for everybody. I, I never want to write for everybody. I, I want the, I want people to not like me. I'll feel like I'm doing a, I want people to like me, of course, but I do want a certain population to not like what I'm doing because then it, then I know I'm, um, then I know I'm hitting the authenticity and I'm hitting the truth. And there's, and you know, and sometimes I disgust myself. I'm just, you know, I'm just like, it's, it's probably, yeah. it's probably why I can't read my old work or, you know, watch old stuff is, it's just too much because I'm. It's just too much. Uh, not that it's bad. Not that I don't. Not that I don't think it's good. It's just. It's too much to consume. 
on my own as like a reader or a writer or as a viewer. It's, it, it's, uh, it's, it's weird. Yeah. The, you know, like familiarity breeds contempt. So you're, you're too much of your, you know, how we all see ourselves in a different light. Not, not, not contempt. I think it's just, um, that was a point in time and, and, and that's, and that's all the, and that's what it was and how lucky am I? But I'd rather watch a new episode of Money Heist on uh, Netflix. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't even know why I said that. I have therapy at 10 a.m. tomorrow. I can talk to my therapist about it. <laughs> okay. But no, I mean, I get it. I mean, some people, after a while, they're like, okay, I'm good. I've passed this phase. I don't want to live here anymore in this, like, mindset. So I, I can understand that. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. With so many remakes and reboots being made today, how can creators truly tell original stories? Well, yeah, I don't, I, I get the franchise thing, you know. Oh, Aquaman worked, and people know what Aquaman is. Um, a Whopper works, they're going to go buy a Whopper instead of the hamburger at the local mom pa joint because they don't know what that is. Um, I, I think... I don't think there's a lot of originality in the stories. There's originality in how they're told and the originality of how we're bringing our unique um, voice and uh, to what a story that's already been told over and over again. <clears throat> and then we get, and then we get together with uh, the actors who have their own unique ways of working. And then the directors who have their unique ways of working. And that's where the beauty comes, or that's where it totally flops and dies. But um, yeah, I mean, for the reboots, you know, I, they got to make reboots so they can give money to the stuff that maybe someone cares about, I guess. Uh, and actors even got to do it too. I don't, I don't think any of these actors that work in superhero movies, I, I don't think they really want to, but that paycheck's really good. And it's just like, I'm going to get in that costume again. And, you know, it's, and I would get in the costume too, because who wouldn't want to buy a house in Los Feliz? <laughs> sure, so, the Palisades and uh, right. private schools and yeah. Exactly. It's, it's great decision making. So, um, yeah, I don't think I'm getting hired on any of those as a writer. Uh, but, may, you know, maybe, maybe they want someone contrarian to come in. <laughs> so. Sure. Have you seen any remakes that were actually better than the originals? Well, Ocean's Eleven, for sure, um, was just way better than the train wreck that was the Frank Sinatra, uh, uh, the Rat Pack, Ocean's Eleven. Um, let me try to think of uh, some, some remakes that were better than the originals. I don't know. It does happen sometimes. Um, I, I, I think... Uh, it's a, it's a, there's a there's a narrative where they try to take great films from the past and remake them now. I think they should go for the crappy films in the past and remake them. I would love to see remakes of terrible films. Like what? I don't, I don't know. Uh, maybe a hard R version of Parent Trap. No. <laughs> I, I I don't know. Why was Ocean's Eleven? Why was the first one so horrible? Uh, I well I've only seen it once. I don't know if have you seen it. Not, not the, you said the one with Frank Sinatra? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The rap pack, sorry. Yeah, it's, um, they didn't care. I don't think there was any care taken in it. It's like, we got these stars, let's put them together. Uh, 
when it got to uh, Sodenberg, seems like there was care taken. Uh, you, and you can tell there's, um, there, there's, it's, you know, it's a blockbuster film, but you look at the frame by frame and you, and you look at the decisions that were made and it's just like, every decision is a great decision. It's, you know, it's, uh, the, 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 and there's a lot of little elements in there too. I can't remember who wrote the screenplay, but the, the beautiful little elements and little choices that are made that's it's 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 what just brings it all together. Yeah. What classic film? It would be a travesty if they try to remake it today. It would just be insulting. Oh, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I think everything should be given a try. I mean, I, the, uh, Gus Van Zandt did a try on Psycho, which was just awful. <laughs> Like Vince Vaughn was, um, yeah, I know it's no one remembers it. There's a reason it's because it was terrible. And I think they use the exact same script, you know, and uh, it was, yeah, but give it a try. Why not? I mean, hey, people, you know, it's if someone's gonna, hey, I'll write a remake of something, I'll, I'll write a remake of a great movie and hope I can do better, and then everyone can just dirt on it. And, it's, you know, I, yeah, it's, I, I say have fun with it. I say, I say ruin great films. Why ruin them? Well, I mean, if you're going to remake them. Yes, it, it, it's, it's, it's a canvas. It's like, it's, 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 uh, you know, why, why not go ahead and try to resketch it? And, and, and I hate this word, intellectual property, but it's all about, oh, we have this property Let's renew this property and let's make money on it. And I understand the business sense of it. So um, not that I'm going to run out and be excited that they remake a, you know, a certain film like, you know, Bicycle Thief or whatever. <laughs> you know, it's just like, let's remake it in modern day Los Angeles. Um, you know what? Go ahead, actually. <laughs> um, it's, yeah, it's... Uh, there's so there's so much crap being made. It doesn't matter if more crap's made. I guess. I'm, okay. Yeah. What if I take music though, which I know is near and dear to your heart as well. Some some you know like you said, uh, was it on camera or off camera? Public Image Limited was one of your first concerts mm -hmm. that you went to. Okay, so yeah. PIL. What if there was a a band that was trying to remake all those songs, and there was a Johnny Rotten that was the new the new guy? It wasn't Johnny Rotten, but it was like this new influencer guy. They kind of look like Johnny Rotten and had sort of the same sensibility. Justin Timberlake can remake it. I'll be like, oh, let's see if it's good. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I, I guess I, I guess I'm not <laughs> nostalgic about it. Um, I've already had my experience with uh, the, the either the original film or seeing the original band, and um, yeah. So um, I, I don't. I, I, I'm I'm realizing now. That I'm not really nostalgic if somebody tries to remake something. I'm like, go ahead, do it. They can remake Jesus Jerk and make it a, uh, you know, make it a superhero film, and uh, you know, just send me the check. <laughs> okay. Why do you think people though are so precious about some of these films or adaptations of certain books? Well, like, why are why are some people so adamant that it shouldn't be done? That it, you know, because there are oh, fans yeah. that would. That are that are angry that the original work. 
yeah, I guess they attribute meaning to it and meaning to it in their own lives. Um, but it's, I, I don't know if they, uh, if they work in film or if they are writers, uh, they, they could be, uh, you know, and, and writing, you know, and film is, it's meant to be critiqued. It's meant to be just ripped apart. That's what everyone's supposed to do. That's the, that's the beauty of, of all of it. It's, you're having a conversation about it. Great. It's it create, it's continuing the conversation. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, um, there was like, a, what was that? Rock and, rock and Roll High School. The Ramones were in Rock and Roll High School. Then they had Rock and Roll High School 2. Corey Feldman was the, was the band of, of Rock and Roll High School 2. And, um, you know, people hate it. But I get a kick out of it. I'm like, there's Corey Feldman pretending like he's Michael Jackson. <laughs> it's just like, it, uh, I'm not upset about it because uh, there's the first one that meant a lot to me as a kid. And uh, the second one is Corey Feldman pretending like he's Michael Jackson. Sure. And the Ramones were at the height of their stardom when that came I, out? You know, I think they gained more stardom, I think, after that movie came out. I think that's, yeah. I think they, I don't think they realized that was going to put them to a new level. Huh. But I don't know. I can't remember because I can't remember exactly when the movie came out. Wow. I saw it on VHS. Oh, nice. <laughs>